dedication, discipline, passion, sacrifice, rise and rise again. Welcome to Any Given Chance. Massive shout out to our sponsor, Squad Athletica. Guys, this training gear, you've got the training singlets, the shirts, they've got absolutely everything. They've got the 12-inch shorts, the 16, everything that you need for the running. It doesn't stop there. They've got yoga mats. They've got drink bottles. They've got you covered at all bases. I'm telling you, this training gear is rivaling Nike. It's rivaling Under Armour. It's at the forefront. And the best thing about it is it's right here on the Gold Coast. So it's a supportable local business. You can jump over to their Instagram. It's at SQD Athletica, or you can jump online and check out their shop, Squad Athletica. Go through, select your little things, what you want to buy, new hoodies for winter, whatever training gear you need, and then type in your AGC code at the end, which will give you a little discount. That's AGC in the little coupon code. Can't thank you enough, and make sure you get out there and get in your squad gear. Woo! Big shout out to one of our sponsors, Black Rose Barbers. That's right. Go see Liam and the boys over at Black Rose Barbers. They're located on Lakeview Boulevard over at Mermaid Waters, right in between the Good Life and the 7-Eleven. Walk out of there feeling a million bucks. The boys can cut hair and he even does the cutthroat razor if you want to feel really fresh and fit on a Friday. You can book online at blackrose.com or you can get on the phone and give them a call, but go support your local business. And the best thing about Black Rose Barber, you can sit in that chair and talk maximum amount of crap. You know why? Because the boys have got the answers. They'll solve the world's problems with you. I'm telling you now, they're a bunch of legends. Go support them. Tell them Matty from AGC sent you. Boom. Lo and behold, I learned how to edit videos. Today, well, what an experience it's been. We're building it. And as we build it, it just keeps evolving into something that I can see and vision in my head day after day. It just slowly grows that 1% better. Um, I know I talk about it a lot. I know Goggins talks about it a lot. But, man, it's truth. It's the truth to progression. For too long, I just sat there and basically did nothing for a few days or just dreamt about it and never put it into action. All the stuff that I was putting into action was not fundamentally right to get these things going. It was more... Oh, yeah, I'm pretending to do something. I'm pretending to do something. This right now feels like it's growing towards a very, very big goal, which of course is the 3AM365 website. I'm going to give you the formula here today. It is 1147. So that's, it's like a code there, isn't it? 1147. So that basically means this you must get to day one. Get to day one, get that done, tick that off. After day one, there is only one more important thing and that is getting the next day done as well. So day two, from there, you've got two days to get to day four. If you're staying on track, whether it's staying off a piss or or your next training session, and then the last goal is three days away. So it gives you three days to stay on track. And once you've ticked that off, that is one complete And then you transfer that into weeks. You do that again, that's one. You do it again, that's two. Then you do it twice, that's four. Then you do it three times, that's seven. And then that's one month worth. And then you do the months by themselves, one, one, four, plus three is seven, seven seven-month goal. If you do this program and you turn it over and you do what I say, within seven months I guarantee your life will be turned around. 
you'll have in your hand the tools to make it in life. You'll have the tools to make it in anything. I firmly believe 1147 is my go-to code and that's something that I've created myself. That is a number that I've made through vigorous guinea pigging, I guess you could call it, and testing and jumping in the deep end, basically making every fuck up you possibly can. And it's taken so long to figure this out and get us to this point. But how good is it now? 1147. It works, people. It works. And that is the thing that we're going to be implementing with 3am365.com. It's just something that I'm passionate about. It's something that I love doing and I'm going to keep doing it even if this business doesn't take off or the company doesn't take off in the direction that I want it to. It's still a massive, massive passion of mine and I I can't live without it without doing these sort of things. So if it's not this, it's definitely going to be something else and, and I'll prove to you that 1147 can work continuously over and over and over in your life, whether it's quitting the beers, quitting drinking, you know, finding happiness again, saving money, getting back into your training, eating the right foods, doing the diet, or much like I'm doing, uh, starting a new company here. 1147 people. The other thing that 3AM365, it's a little bit off-putting, I know about the name, but 3AM actually, for me, is two and a half hours before I start my day or two hours before I start my day. I'm, I'm, I still have a uh, business and building. Building can go jam it up the ass, so it's fucking not a matter of if but when you get ripped off in that in that industry. I still have to work. I still I still do things. I still work very, very hard behind the scenes. So trying to start another company only adds another 20, 30 hours to the week, I tell you, plus training. So if I don't get up and go before my day starts at 5, 5.30, that's it. I won't get training done. I won't get the amount of training that I need to do. And also I won't be starting the day on the front foot. I'll be starting the day not having done something for myself. I'll be starting the day doing something for, you know, work or something that we usually don't like to do. So that's my whole take on 3am, 365. So if your day starts at 9 o'clock, your 3am is 7, 7am or 6am. You know, it's only three hours before you get up, you have your supplements, something that we're going to be working on coming in the future as well is a one scoop to rule them all. Before we jump into what you did, tell us the difference that you found between your training for amateur and your training for professional. Now, obviously, we'll speak about amateurs, three trees. Professional bouts, you're going, what, eight, 12 rounds? Eight, yeah. eight rounders, 12 rounds, three minutes to none. Now, did your whole game plan change in throughout that? What was your different mentality coming in? Yeah, because when I was even amateur, we were doing four two, so totally different again. So, like, yeah. um, you know, it was fast, in and out, quick. The trainer on your toes all the time. Yeah. Uh, don't switch off. You haven't no. got a second switch off. You yeah. can't get a breath. No, you didn't do too many long runs. The long runs were... Sports-specific yeah. sort of things. Like, like Georgia. Uh, yeah. Um, Eight sort of training, yeah. High and then the high heart rate. When I went into the, the pros, it was slow. You've got to build into it. Yeah. And more with your shots. Yeah. Um, we used to follow the yeah. so much on his bike. first round or two, he's just nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Feel around, and yeah. you know, it takes a while. You can blow yourself out when you have your first fight. You know, you so did you start doing more longer runs? You know, um, yeah, it was, it was a bit different. Um, was it more heart rate based? Oh, I remember every Thursday I had to do slow fifteen k runs. Yeah, slow. And no, no, pull it back. And or, yeah, yeah, I was like, I was like, oh, here's the time. Here's no, no. Fast. You know? I find that running down. Yeah. You know, I've only recently got done running once again, but as soon as you get over that heart rate zone, yeah. into the next one. 
and zone three or you burn it, those extra calories, you blow up. Yeah. And you blow out by the time you get to the But if you sit in that, that zone where you're... It's, yeah, it's, so, it's so hard to pull, pull you back, especially when you're in explosive back. Yeah, and you want to go and you, you think, let's go. And you're a little yeah. under the you just want to get out there. Yeah. Like, like, that yeah. training, that middle way, actually, if you can get that down pat, actually benefits you. A thousand times. From a an amateur yeah. to a professional is totally different. So, anyone think it. I don't take an amateur to be that professional boxer. I've probably taken it in seven to ten fights. Yeah. my calories to the point where I was and you know you hear a lot of people out there that they eat 4,000 5,000 plus calories I was never that person 
but my calories got quite high to like the mid 3,000, so 3,500 calories a day. Really? That was in the first three months. Then prep started, which was basically the next. So what was the reason of that? Was that, were you in a surplus? Then? Yeah, so we started in a surplus. He just wanted to sort of increase energy at the, at the beginning of prep, um, you know, maybe try and get a little bit of muscle if I could. Not going to gain a lot in three months, yes. but just to try and increase some energy where he could, maybe even put on a little bit of body fat. But my weight stayed the same. So for three months at eating at a, at a pretty high surplus for, for my body, my weight stayed, managed to be around 85. So basically what he sort of gauged there was maintenance. So I could pretty much sit at 85 kilos with a sort of like 3,500 calorie mark. And then you work in a lab. I work in a, yeah, so we make. So is um, it just, just so people can get a gauge of, you're not a trader, you're not rendering or anything yeah. like that because 3,500, I assume you would have. Yeah, if I was a trader, I'd be on a lot higher. And that's yeah. where you probably hear about the people that are, are on such a higher calorie surplus. Yeah. But I don't think their body can stand handle that. You can't render trade all day and, and do and your, that, yeah. and do your training, yeah. what you're doing. And think your body's going to stay together. Yeah. So um, and it's a lot of food, man. Like three thousand five hundred calories is a lot of food. Yeah. You add another thousand plus calories onto that, and you're, you're fucking. You just find yourself eating all day, every day. A lot of the calories that I ate at the beginning did come from liquid calories, like not fucking shit calories, like drinking cokes and things like that. I'd have juices and stuff in the morning, like orange juice and apple okay, juice, yeah. try boost it up. And then obviously, yeah, I'd eat a lot of whole foods as well. So, yeah, so for three months, we were around about the 3,500 calorie mark, and then we started your contest prep, and then basically each week we would just be chipping away at that number and we would bring it down. So my lowest calorie intake, which would have been sort of like your last three weeks coming into prep, was around about 1,800 calories, so almost half of what my intake was at the start, and we come down to basically, yeah, 1,800 calories three, three weeks out from comp. With that being said, your macronutrients that make up your calories, your protein, carbs, and fats, again, carbs were set quite high, and then they would come down as the weeks would come along. Now, the numbers that I had during my the last few weeks into SAGE, they were pretty low for what people might hear or might actually do. So my fats went down to 25, 25 grams a day. Now, that's fucking pretty low for a lot you of people. You see fat away. Yeah, yeah. So 25 grams of fat a day. Protein was around about 215, 220 grams. And then my carbs were sitting around about 150 to 190, maybe 200. And that's quite hard to fucking manage your food intake when yeah. you're on numbers like that and being in a flexible approach for the entire Because you need to find foods that suit that model, don't yeah. you? Yeah, so, so I, just, I, I ate fucking a lot of fish, yeah, a lot of white fish, a lot of asparagus. Now, this is the end of coming into the end of prep, a lot of asparagus, a lot of zucchini, and um, what else was I eating? Rice. Yeah, man. So Actually, there wasn't just, a lot of food choices that I could have. What was the fill-up day? What was the re-energy day? Because there was yeah, a Sunday so, or Sunday yeah. that I'd watch every day. Yeah. Oh, what's he going to eat now? Yeah. What's he going to eat now? <laughs> so with all those numbers being said, I did have a refeed day. And some of those days would be two days, so back-to-back. And there were a few days, a few weeks where I got a triple refeed, which, like, fucking rocked my world. Yeah. So three whole days of eating that, like, basically going back to a higher level of um, caloric intake. So... And that basically just came in the form of carbs. Yeah. Um, so I was able to eat more carbs on, on certain days. And that just allowed me to get my energy back up because, like I said prior, 
your energy levels are quite low, you're dragging your feet, you're just, you feel like you want to sleep every single fucking hour of the day. Like you, and, but you just have something in you to get through your, uh, through your workouts, man. And like I'd rock up Tuesdays and Fridays with my leg days and I'd just walk in there going, fuck. What the fuck am I going to do here? I'm no, daddy, no. Fucking 2,000 calories. Like, yeah. Fuck me dead. And I'd, I'd get through it. Oh, yeah. I'd look over. At three in the morning. Down the corner. Yeah. And on it goes. Yeah. Mate, I'd, some mornings I reckon you would that, just leave that, you'd struggle to pick up yeah. the plate. Yeah, yeah, man. And I'd watch you put the plate on and then I'd watch you yeah. put on three or four more and I'd be like, he's trying to pick that, what's he? Yeah. And then off you go. And there'd be times I'd be sitting in the gym going, well, the fucking bench is over there and I need to be over there. Like, I don't want to move the bench nah. over there and get over there. Like, is there a fucking another exercise that I could do that mimics what I'm about to do? Oh. So, yeah, yeah, your energy levels are, they just fucking, they play with you yeah. all day when you're in such low, low, you yeah. intake. And it, um, it's not good. Like I said, it's not a, it's not a sustainable way to be. Right. Yeah. I mean, like a lot of people can be shredded all year round, but that wasn't my goal. No. I had one goal and that goal was to fucking step on stage and do what I had to do. Right. Mind you, if you rip your shirt off now, I guarantee you'd be shredded more than ninety percent of the people out. So don't go anywhere. I suppose with businesses and whatnot, where you come in well with there is life coaching. You're in the people industry now, and there's a lot of people, a lot of successful business men and women who just don't know how to deal with their staff either. Who can't? Who cannot? Like, there's a big thing. You know, leaders lead by example. And communication is everything with it as well. If you don't have that communication and you don't lead by example, business is going to, you might be very good at the top, but you won't have anyone responsive under there. So I think that's where that position in the middle there would be very, very good. But I think, mate, that 19, like you said, that out of school to the 21 year old gap, if you can touch a few guys there and, and just wean them off that road and go look and get them into these sports or get them into a hobby or get them. I always talk about that. I mean, I want to coach, you know, eventually like rugby league teams around that age because I think that age is still a sponge and you're searching for that mentor. A lot of people don't get it. I was lucky enough to land in with Scotty Parr and he just come back from playing in the NRL and he was running Sunday, you know, training sessions and same thing, going down the wrong path. Who knows which way I was going. Luckily, dragged me into this system, which once again changed me life. I learned about training. I learned proper rugby league and sent me on the pathway down chasing my dreams. But that was by chance. There would have been a hundred kids behind me who missed out and gone the other way and are still trying to find their way in life and, and what they're doing. So I think, yeah, Guardian and guys. I think, is, sorry, Dave, I think yeah. it's something we touched on earlier too, you know, people coming to at that age could be coming to the end of a career or fail football career or you know there's yeah. people that get to the end of their career and don't know what to do they've got nothing else yeah. you know i've sort of got the opposite where i've got boxing now but these guys are they, they're coming at loss mm-hmm. you know they may not have got to where they wanted to but their expectations and, and they're failed so it's probably a prime age where you know it's like myself going down the, the dark roads yeah. or work ways to, to keep going up and, and come back from it. Or you have that ideology of that's who I am, especially when you're young. You attach yourself to, like we spoke about, you attach yourself to skydiving. I attach myself to, I'm Matt, the rugby league player. Yeah. My career finished. You realise rugby league just moves <laughs> on to the next young 18 superstar and that's it. I, I no longer train five, six nights. Where's the reason? 
what's the reason to keep training? And a lot of the guys just lose it. Go that. And then they hang on to who they were or where they weren't. And I speak about this consistently about, okay, let's hit a point zero. That's now our starting point. Don't worry about what's behind us, who you were. Let's worry about getting our goals in the future. Let's worry about what I can achieve, not what I have achieved. And that's the same in the life coaching. That's what's going to help people to keep continuing to set goals and to make these goals achievable. Yeah. You know, and give yourself love and praise along the way. You know, it's the journey. It's not, not this that's sitting there that's, that I'm most proud of. Like that's a, yeah. the icing on the cake from it, but there's so many moments along the way that I'm more proud, more of, proud of leading up to, yes. to this. You know, oh, and there are moments within yourself as well. I've noticed like no one around when I stepped on that scales and it was 99.9. Man, I, uh, same thing, yeah. emotional yeah. just – and that was 35 kilos down. That was massive for yeah. me. But then – Hit point zero again, and or just some something little like so much effort has gone into this thing that no one else notices, but you've got to be able to acknowledge those things and not just brush over them or go past. You got to that you got to have that acknowledgement of yes, I did that. Celebrate your win. Let's go. Let's go. Pat yourself on the shoulder each morning. The day clean. Yeah, no one knows about it. Whatever. It's just my little fuck yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's. I'm proud of it. And you wake up the next day, pumped again. Let's go again, mate. Let's go again. And it's that conversation with yourself that really matters because, like you said, you can mask it to a lot of people out there how your day was. And a lot of people don't give a fuck as well. You know what I mean? I just said, what could we just be able to walk around with a tape recorder in your top pocket? Hey, mate, how you doing? Chris, yeah, you know, all right. It's just that learn where. Now, yeah, I'm doing this, doing that. Yeah, it works shit, works great. Found a struggle, whatever. We're going through this. And actually just be open and honest about it. But yeah. if, if I wasn't so open about my journey and that, how am I going to help change people? Correct. You know, I'm, I'm not ashamed of what I've done. I used to be for a long time where I'm grateful for my struggles now because I found my strengths through it. And without that, you know, been wanting to help others. And everyone's always going to have an opinion or judge, but I'm the only person that's probably so, so you've seen the bridge to Brisbane. You've gone, okay, I'm going to do five kilometers. Yeah. You cleaned up that. You said, I'm going to do 10. Then I'm going to do 21. What happened when you looked at your physio and your team and said, you know what? I'm going to do a marathon. <laughs> Did they look at you crazy? The doctor, laughed. <laughs> the doctor laughed. He goes, for a start, you don't have a running a running physique, you're actually pretty short or 130 centimetres off you. You really don't have a build for the things I try and do, but that was the whole point in it. It was like, okay, you told me no, so I'm, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And I was like, oh, it's not that far. But then, like, one day it kind of scared the crap out of me because we drove from, like, Burley to Coomera. And that's like 40K. And it was like, wow, I have to like push that. I have to get through that bar. That's insane. When you do these marathons, when you do these runs, you've got these, is it a race runner? That's the terminology? The first couple I did in my walker and then I did some in a race wheelchair. But like my arms have always been stronger than my legs. Yes. So when I found race running in 2019, um, I haven't really looked back. Like, I haven't done much else. 
when you did the marathons, these are completely two different things. So your walker is like a legit four wheel hold on to the side, yeah. balance yourself, and you're walking the whole way. Where these race runners have a, a sort of like a trike system, don't they? They have the two wheels at the front and the one at the back. Yeah, so it's basically a trike without pedals. Wow. Yeah, completely different. So it's a three-wheel frame. So that a makes – Three-wheel frame with it. Yeah, that makes the uh, marathons even more crazy because you would have been, like you said, strong in the arms, supporting yourself and legitimately walking. The, there's no way to take your weight other than through your arms if you needed a break on your legs or anything like that over the 42 kilometers, yeah, was there? Yeah. What we might do, just for the listeners out there uh, who don't know what cerebral palsy is, can you just give them a little insight onto what actually goes on in your body? So you were born with it as well. And how does this affect you? Yeah, so I was born with spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy. So my muscles are extremely tight. And I also have dystonia, which means I have uh, abnormal movements when I move. So things look very effortful and wouldn't be the way a typical person would move to do things. So for like example, you know, you go to the gym um, and do a workout, my body feels like that 24 hours a day, every day of the week. Wow. So it's just like that intense, you know, muscles are tightening and grabbing the whole time. Yeah. And then you decided to run a marathon. <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> crazy. Absolutely crazy. So you, living with that now, how do you structure your training around that? Do you need rest days immediately after you've done something big, done a training day? Like does training help or does it fatigue you more? Uh, training for me, like I train every day. I have a rotational training program. So I train six days a week, two to three hours a day. It rotates between gym, pool, physio and track. So basically it's, it's split up into about an hour of each thing yeah. depending on the day of the week. But I have to train every day because that rigidity of movement is triggered by lack of movement as well. So if I don't move, it be even stiffer. So training for you is a massive plus. So getting out there, it's not going to fatigue your muscles anymore. It's going to help them stretch and help them move. Is that correct? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And I love the 365. I love the I train every day. That's uh, inspirational. Part of the no days off crew. I love it. That's so it. from there, from marathons, like I said, we've spoke about these race runners. We've spoke about the setup of them. They're like a trike, two big wheels at the front, one at the back with no pedals, and you basically are able to support your weight at the front and run with your legs sprinting between. But who suggested that you get into sprinting? Like how did you transform from doing these distance runnings into these track well, workouts? My physio and exercise physiologists are like, you love to do everything quick. You don't like wasting time. So why are you doing like a marathon? That takes hours, whereas this can take seconds. So they suggested I, I try race running. And at first I was like, what the hell is this? I'm like, I didn't know what to think, to be honest. But until I got used to it, it's really hard to, I guess, yeah, overcome that difference because I'm so used to doing stuff for a long period of time as opposed to, you know, short, sharp things. Yeah, right. At first I thought it was a bit weird, different concept because, like, obviously my thoughts were I can't walk. How am I actually going to run? <laughs> um, 
But yeah, they 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 obviously had a different view, and uh, don't I thank them for yeah. that now? Well, not only do you thank them for it, you've got a record at the moment, don't you? For the is it for the hundred meter? Yeah, the hundred meters. I am the Australian record. For the uh, RL1 classification, so the most profoundly impaired class in history. And because of all this, now this has only just come about as well, these race runners and sprinting, it's looking at being in the Olympics here in Brisbane in 2032, which is 11 years away. Yeah. Now this could all come about because of you as well. So what you've done from now, what, after getting in there and setting records and that, you've set up a foundation. Now, this foundation has brought tremendous amounts of joy to kids with cerebral palsy all around Australia. It has given them purpose and shown them that they too can compete. They can compete in sprinting and they can compete what might be their dream. If they're 10 years old now, 11 years, 21 they could be competing in the Olympics in 2032. All right, so you had the fall. What happened then? How long was recovery? You've got what? Go again? Uh, two vertebrae, three ribs, punched a lung and sliced my kidney. So there's some so you got internal bleeding and all that going on? Internal bleeding. This entire area just got smashed. I had a horse uh, as I was rolling. It sort of put me in the back of its legs and yeah. it fell. So I had that, that, oh, that, that impact of straight to one area. Uh, so it's basically like, yeah, just getting run over, basically. It's legitimately there. Someone coming 60 kilometres an hour under them. Exactly, like 600 kilo or yeah. 500 kilo horse yeah. straight into the ribs and the spine. So yeah, it's not a sad that great horse. It was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was skinny rocky. Yeah, 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 rocky horse. <laughs> Sorry, rocky people. But. We love you. Yeah, yeah, so what was the recovery? What did you do? How did you end up there? So that was, I think, between fall to race riding again was about 11 months. Um, yeah, that was um, like what heaps of rehab or what, what, what went on? A fair bit of rehab, I guess. So I was working with a physio with with that and starting to do my own strength stuff, starting to look into you know strengthening my spine and learning my core. Yeah. At that young age, where I guess we come out of high school and stuff, we don't really know. Too no, much. That's what yeah. I mean. Like it's all just yeah, so this improvised. probably prompted you to learn exactly. Yeah. yeah. So always being curious about how to improve my advantages with whatever I do, whether yeah. it's racing or you know my weight and stuff like that. So I was always looking to require as much information as I can about these subjects just so I can make myself better at yeah. what I need to do. During that that stage, I was sort of, I was boxing a little bit before my fall uh, just for fitness and uh, boxing also after about eight months of um, of rehab, I went back to boxing just to kind of strengthen that, the core strength yeah. using that. That definitely helped. I rode for about six weeks, just my weight was just fucked. Oh, yeah. we, uh, what were you walking around with? I was walking around at 61, 62. Uh, trying to ride at, you know, I was 50, still 56, exactly, 56, 54, if you yeah, can. Yeah. So you've made it back from that recovery. You went back to ride six weeks into six it. Six weeks. Couldn't make it go. I mean, like I said, I was 61, 62 kilos. I'd get down to like 58, 57, and I did a DEXA scan, and I was 5.7.8% body fat. You know? Yeah, right. So, so there's nothing, not much to give there. Nothing more to go. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, at that stage, I kind of sort of needed to think, well, this might not last forever. Yeah. You know, being a champion of Renaissance Town, you're young, you're fucking motivated, you're confident, you yeah. have a lot of money. Yeah. You think it's going to last forever. Yeah. And the realisation that it wasn't. So you're still growing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And to stay at that weight is ridiculous. That's not to put it in people's perspective. Like uh, fighters, they might cut weight once, you know, every three months. If they have a fight every three months, you know, they bring it down. 
this would have required you what a cut weight every week. Every week, yeah, daily. Yeah, yeah, absolutely daily. So I was doing at least three kilos of fluid, and you know, uh, obviously for your Saturday and your Wednesday town meetings, you know, they were prioritized yeah, too. Which is just rinsing your liver, your kidney, and everything. Exactly. Like that. And obviously, due to the fall, when I did lacerate my kidney, yeah, um, you know, so I already had damage there, like yeah. physical damage to the kidneys. So dehydrating yourself, you know, yeah. extreme dehydration. Like I'm like. Yeah, I'll be cutting years off my life here if I'm, I'm doing this. So I'm going to get healthy. Going to you know really just think, focus on strengthening and improving my body and yeah. into a next next path of life. Which yeah. which was like we, we touched on it in there. You were boxing in in between. You basically came out of that and, and came into MMA straight away. Yeah. Straight away. Straight away. Yeah. Right. So, like all right, I'm not doing that anymore. What what can I do? Six months later, I'm in a cage fighting yeah. someone. Where'd you walk into? How'd you get into it? Um, so, like I said, originally I got into boxing through Steel Ryan. He sponsored a lot of sort of high class boxers at that time, and, and knew a few trainers. And, um, a gym was opening up just at the end of the road where the stables were. Yeah, right. I got in there and started sparring pretty much soon away. After about yeah, it would have been two months or so. It's doing really well, and I got suspended for racing. And my coach, yeah, I was hanging with some of the Australian level guys in there, and yeah. coach comes over and he said, "Oh, this fights that weekend. Do you want to have a go?" Yeah, fuck yeah, that sounds great. Like yeah. riding, you know. So didn't have to worry about my weight or nothing. I just focused on boxing, and yeah. that was the Queensland novice titles. Yeah, right. I went, uh, went and won that. You know, it's just. <laughs> Yeah, by the way, I'm not riding this weekend, so I'll just go win a Queensland on the title. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, it was a great experience. Uh, my racing manager actually came and watched that fight yeah, too. Right. You know? so, Thank you. Um, yeah, that was a great experience. And, you know, that was just a novelty at the time, back to racing. Yeah. I always thought that I wanted to learn how to fight. Yeah. Know, even growing up, beating the shit out of Mitchell all the time. Yeah. We grew up in a, in a street that was probably 12 to 15 kids. Yeah. You know? So it was always pretty rough housing yeah, and stuff. Yeah. They were always in the fighting movies, blood sports, and yeah, stuff like that. Right, yeah. Just the the adrenaline and bring back a Van Damme movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chuck Norris. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. maintaining it. When you got to start, you go from zero to hundred and that is the worst three or four weeks yeah. of life. Like trying to get fit, get your weight down, get sort everything out is just absolutely hectic. Yeah. But once you're there, it's if you're riding every second day or like, I'll still go for a run, I'll still go for a walk, I'll still do, like, things like go to Pilates and yeah. keep everything, like, I'll keep everything fit and locked down, yeah. but I'm not flat out three hours, four hours a day training no. because so I, I guess, needed it. Yeah, I guess a lot of people can take anything, like, something like that in whatever they do, whether it's, you know, in business or they're trying to start a new project or they're just trying to get that first kilo lost. It's that two- to three-week period to get started is the absolute hardest. But it's, yeah. It's like any, like if if you start a business, your first three or five years are going to be ridiculous. Ridiculous. Like just going to pull your hair out yeah. and you're going to have sleepless nights. Well, that's a great sort of algorithm you can use there because businesses, you look at long-term. Businesses, yeah. you look at 10 to 20. Losing weight and fitness and training, you can peak within eight weeks. So you look at the first two, three years of a business, there's always hard work and a slog for a 10-year thing. The first two, three weeks of a fitness program or something like that is always going to be the hard slog for a 10-week sort of, sort of that, program. And that's, if you can get through that breakthrough mark, that's yeah. all it is. Like whether it be, I look at it through anything. Like if, if I need to get fit, it's the first two, three weeks getting fit. Even get in the bath and losing yeah. weight. Like I, I, if I sit there and go, Christ, I've got four hours of this. But I go, all right, I'll do 20 minutes. I'll see how I feel and we'll get back in. And I'll do 20 minutes like that. Yeah. And you do it on the ear. And you work in it like you, you take chunks out of it, if you know yeah. what I mean. Small goal. Like, you know, yeah, you, you don't go into business, go, okay, I'm going to have 15 franchises 
like in that was, 12 months. Well, but that comes back to us being yeah. 21. We would have thought that when we were young. But you've got to have that mindset. Like, that's always the end goal, but it's not. Yes. Like, and that's what you're aiming for. That's but you know, like, that's not going to happen in 12 months. But if you have two open in 12 months, like yeah. a percentage of the way there, and then, okay. You got- I, I guess a lot of people um, don't see, when you're in that zone and you're doing that hard work, and say you're sitting in the bath or anything like that, after 20 minutes, you see that you've lost 200 grams or you've seen that you've, you know, you've built, you're up to a certain point in business or a certain point. It's very hard to see that as a win or a success because they're so small and gradual. And when you get back to two years or, or when you get to that way, to look back and say, oh, that's what I've actually done, you need to be able to, you know, set a point and recognise that because it, that's what I found. Finding small wins along the way, I was never happy I was always wanting more. I was always, it was only when I found time or a way to look back and reflect and go, oh shit, I have done that. I should be happy with that. I should be improved. I don't have to be angry at myself because I didn't get to my next one in time or something like that. You need to represent. And I mean, it's always good to have drive and go forward and whatnot, but you need to be able to, like you said, if you're cutting weight, you need to be able to look back and go, all right, I've got a kilo done. This isn't going to be so hard. I've only got three to go. I've got that one done. It's always just a mindset. Like your body can pretty much take anything. Like that's that's what I found. Your body will do like your body will do whatever you want it to do. It's your mind that won't. Yeah. Like if you get in there and you're half-assed about something and you go, "Well, I got three to lose," and you do a kilo and you go, "I feel like shit. I'm going to get out and pull a pin." Mm -hmm. Like easy. Your body will sit in there and do eight kilos. Yeah. Like you might be on death's door, but you'll do it. You'll fucking not a problem. It's this that you got to get through. That's right. And it's like anything. As long as you. Like you gotta want to do it, as in the, to the point where it means more to you than anything. Like I know that's hard to say about cutting weight or not eating or something, but the end goal is like, what do you want? You want to ride that group one winner? You want to be successful in the company you've done? You want to yeah. get down to a certain weight, whatever it is. Like if you want it bad enough, you'll get it. Yeah, doesn't matter what comes in front, or what what steps in front of you. Like weight's been my biggest issue from day dot, but. People were saying that I wouldn't last past 18. People were saying I wouldn't last past 25. Now, like, even my old boy goes, Christ, like, I didn't even think he'd get to 30. And, like, I'm two months away from 30. And, And, you know, chasing down the best part of your career. Yeah, like, I've never, like, you asked me 10 years ago, would I be stable jockey for the leading, like, in Queensland for the leading trainer in Australia? Like, I'd be like, mate, I'd love to be, but, like, yeah, yeah, like, seriously. Like, that's the goal. But, like, and I look back on it and I go, like it's been a dream, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah. But every step of your way has basically built up to this point. And exactly. Like and you need the opportunity. Don't get me wrong. You need the opportunity. You definitely need luck. But in saying that, like you make your own luck. That's right. Like you didn't pass up on the opportunity. No. You didn't. You, you got the opportunity and and you took it with both hands. And you see a lot of that in um, uh, rugby league as well. You know, you, you might only get one shot at the top game, and yeah, the. You're in, or the next exactly. one's and, up. And the, so. like sometimes too, it's it's at the misfortune of someone else. But yeah. That's just the world we live in. Someone gets hurt or someone gets suspended or whatever. Especially in sports. As good as it is to be a nice guy in sport and be good, but you've got to have that ruthless mentality. You have to have that fucking... Yeah, and it's not like... It's not personal by any means. You're not like, like, he's my best mate. Fuck a participation medal. Like, it's... it's I ride with some of my best mates and, like, they've taken good rides off me and it's not... Like, we've always got an expression, there's no friends on the brass. Nowadays, I train, as you know, 3 a.m., 3, 6, 5 every day. Vanny, what time do you go to bed at night? 
Oh, mate, I still try. Yeah, I'm in bed at 6.30, 7 o'clock. You know, if, got, if I've got a late night at work or something like that, it's 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, and, yeah. you know, the body clock still goes off. But I make sure I try and – I can run off six – I've got ADHD, mate. Six hours for yeah. me and I'm – let's go. And with the um, – because I've talked to you about this. I don't know if you've said this on any of your podcasts, but with the 3 a.m., why did it turn into a 3 a.m.? Uh, yeah, Have you talked story. about this? No, I haven't. I haven't brought it up yet, so – Mate, I was I was battling those demons in my head. I was um I was, you know, trying to chase my former self. I turned into a fucking fat, useless fuck. I was so pissed off and so depressed. And there was this one moment that turned for me, and it was um if I can make myself this depressed, I can make myself that fucking happy. Anyway, so I had to get. I use internal anger. I basically bagged the shit out of myself to get myself motivated, and I've got to win. I've always had that competitiveness in me. I've got to fucking win. So I think I'm tough. I'm getting back into there. I'm doing all this fucking two-a-day training. I'm going again. I start going to the gym in the mornings because that's what I know. I go back, lift weights, and, and getting on the treddy and running 100 metres and walking 100 metres. I've got videos of me fucking fat gut bouncing up and down. Yeah. This will be a good story because I knew as soon as I made that decision, I knew where I'd be yeah. if I played the long game. But the process was anyway. So I'm going to the gym in the morning. I am start rocking up early and I'm fucking in there. And there's a couple of other blokes in there early. I'm thinking, fucking, God, what time are these guys getting in? <laughs> anyway, so that was about 4.30. So I start getting in at 4 and training. I've got to get, get this training session in. Then I go to boxing in the afternoons, like two a day. So I've got to get this weight off. And old mates, one bloke's still in there earlier than me. I'm thinking, fuck, So boom, 3.50, I'm in there. I beat him in there. Yeah. How good's this? I'm first in the gym. Look at me. I'm King Dingaling. Fucking how good. I'm training hard. This is, I've beat him. I've won. The next morning, he's in there first. I was like, he must have came in five minutes earlier. I yeah. Like, Fuck, what the fuck are coming in there? Do, right. do you think he's playing the game with you? I, 100%. I know the bloke. Oh, okay. So, yeah. I come in at 340. I've beaten him and then he's gone, oh, no, 335, 330. And I've turned around and I've gone, fuck this. I'm just going to rock up at 3 a.m. And I rocked up at 3 a.m. and I seen him start coming at 3.25, 3.20, 3.15 for a few mornings and he's going, fuck this, he's going back to 4 o'clock. Yeah. But then I realised I had that gym to myself for an hour and then I realised my day starts. So when I was starting training at 4, my day started at 5 or 6 o'clock. I'm in building as well. I've always run a company in building. Problems start at 5 a.m., you know what I yeah. mean? Someone's not showing up or there's not material or something like that. So I was getting halfway through my training sessions anyway, and then I was answering phone calls. So when I started training at 3 a.m., I was getting two hours done. I was getting my stretching done. Yeah. I was getting my training done, and then my day would start. And I realized 3 a.m. isn't about getting up at 3 a.m. 3 a.m. is about that two hours in the morning and win the morning, win the day. And once I started fucking realizing that and I had all this time to myself to do my thinking, and, you know, process my thoughts. And, of course, when you exercise and your endorphins are up and you, you, there's nothing but positivity, I come out of that and I come into the day running. It, yeah. feels, it feels like I've got a head start on the day by about, you know, 50, 100 metres. You guys are waking up, rolling around, going, oh, I've got to get my day started. I'm going, fucking, where are we going? What are we doing? Yeah. So I, I thank Andy so much. Um, he ended up being, he's the Hebel installer before we get there to render, because I'm in render, Hebel and render. We end up working together anyway. And figuring that out by bumping each other on the job site. But, yeah, that whole progression to got to 3 a.m. has now stemmed to this company that we're building. And, and the company is all about basically my mess, you know what I mean? How, and the guinea pig that I've been throughout my career from 
trying to be a professional, well, being a professional sportsman, whether, yeah. you, whether you play in NRL or not, I was a professional sportsman. We trained five days a week, did all that. That's right, yeah, paid we, to play. Yeah, that's it, paid to play, and that's all that I concentrated on. Yeah. I worked to fund my ambition to play sport. That's right. And I've been on every single diet there. I've had every single supplement pumped into me. I've had, you know, every up and down, think I'm a hero, fucking look how good I'm going, losing everything. Yeah. I've been bankrupt twice. I've had my building company taken off me after GFC. I've had every fucking roller coaster of emotion you could possibly go through. But the one thing that I do know that, that I've got into me is, is that drive and that you're not beating me, and especially myself. But nowadays, I don't see negativity either at all. I don't see, you know, if you start whinging about something, I'll fucking either zone out yeah. or I'm just like, hey, enough of that. Yeah. We're, we're heading on this path. This is the path I'm going. I'm all about not what I've done. I'm so proud of, of, of making Queensland Cup. I'm so proud of what I've done, you know, building and losing my career. I've now got the, the vision of that didn't happen to me. It happened for me. That was a big changing point in my mentality. And I, it's so weird in your 20s, you think that's the end of it. Once your footy career is over and that, you think the best of you is done. And I've started to realize that, you know, five years, I'm going to be good at something. Five years, I'm going to have a booming company and a booming fucking podcast. You know, yeah. it's going to happen. It's just a process. In 10 years, I'm going to be a professional at this. I'm going to be speaking in a studio. Everything's going to be great. Or not going to pan out. I'm going to hit reset. I'm going to go again with something else I love. I mean, we were talking about, I know I've been on the mic and a lot of yeps coming out before we think. Before 3am 365 came about, I had a, a travel website that we were putting together for four years, put so much time and energy and money into it. Neverneverland.team, it's still sitting there, but we we're going to, all the islands, all the beautiful islands out of Bali, all the ones you should be going to, getting straight out of fucking Cooter and getting all the local people to put their small businesses on that they have nothing to advertise about, you know, that. You know, learn to cook Indonesia, learn to speak Indonesia, this secret surf spot, this day tour, this bike riding thing. We had that ready to go, bang. The week before we fly out to launch it over there, COVID hits. We lose our flights, we do that. I've just lost four or five years of my life trying to, once again, branch out away from building into something. Uh, Who are you doing that with? Myself. Just yourself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This, is, this is me. This is me drive. This is my drive. This is my, I can't stop this thing. And I mean, I've got my board up there and there's been times that, you know, I've got $20 in my pocket. I'm back at home saying, Tad, I can't, can I move in? I've got no rent this week. And then this is after having brand new house, brand new home, everything like that. So I've had to hit reset a lot of times in my life, but I've never, I didn't know how to handle it until now. And um, the formulas that I've, that I've put together through this process and through this ride is what makes me believe so much in 3AM365 and about getting after it and not wasting a day at all. And just seeing with my dad, the amount of medication I had around my home at that mm. time, he was a goddamn chemist. So yeah. I had my sister fucking booting it up. Yeah. I, you know, I was, I don't know, I was always orally just taking it. Yeah. Um, but and I didn't realize, but I was, I was, you know, a prescription addict. For that, it goes from, you know, like you said, goes from volume to then, then on the oxys. And then if you can't get the oxys, then you start looking. I never did, but then the people start looking at the street stuff to try to yeah. get that hit like an oxy. And I didn't realize how bad it was. Yeah. Until like you take a good look, hard look at yourself. Mm. And that's why I feel like after I was so dependent on that and I'm, I'm lucky that I, I was able to slip away from that and that, but that's when I 
started getting heavy on the drink and that's when I started. Yeah, but you substitute, yeah, yeah. But, and the thing, I, I would make excuses in my head because I was still training at an elite level. Correct. And I'd be like, well, I'm still training this hard. I can do this other stuff to my body, you yeah. know? And that's, that's... Isn't it weird how your ego does that? Like even branching off on that, like you tell yourself that when you're speeding a car. Yeah. You know, you're doing 78, you go, oh, it's okay. It's only 10 kilometers over. Yeah. Or... You know, with the mask with coronavirus, oh, I fucking hate wearing masks and I hate that, but I'm not wearing a mask because because why? Isn't it funny how you tell yourself or you make excuses for yeah. yourself? No, I'm still playing at elite level. I can afford to do this. Yeah. What I've found is how much happier you are and how much better life is if you just don't do that shit oh, and it. continue going forward because it's basically four steps forward, three steps back called Sunday Progress Day because everyone always trains during the week and then they go Sunday, Sunday off. So that's two days they missed out on and probably two days that they're doing something wrong. So they're taking two off at five, they're back down and, you know, making progress three. If they have one day off during the week, they're only making two and they wonder why they go nowhere. Yeah. If you just tick along there, you got to five days and then you just put a little stretch, a little something in day five, day seven. Instead of two days, you're at seven full days, you know, full week. You're, yeah. you're killing it. And, mate, that's what – um. With the drink and everything like that as well. Jeez. It, once again, I've been there, done there. Everything. So I'm not here to preach and say alcohol's bad. Fucking is. Yeah. But I'm just here to say that wow, with life, once you make that decision to change, for me, I can't have one or two. I'm an all or nothing guy. That's yeah. Um, that, that's kind of what I'm finding about myself at the moment. Yeah. You know, like at the moment is, uh, and yeah, I do the tricks in my head again. I'll be like, oh, I've, I know I've got four beers at home. I'll just finish them off. Then I'll have nothing in my house. But then they'll turn into, oh, then I'll put another six pack in that house. You know what I mean? Correct. But yeah, I've got to be, I've got to take myself out of the situation. So yeah. like after footy training, I won't stay and have a beer with the, like the cartons. Yeah. If the cartons are at the back of the thing, I've got to do that. I've got to take myself. Yeah. You've got to remove away. yourself. Into, yeah. The other thing you do is, um, which I, you find out who your real mates are, but I've told them, I put it out there. I speak it. I spoke it on social media. For me to do this, I put a huge tube over in Lombongan. I needed to get back surfing. My soul needed cleaning. I hadn't been in the ocean for who knows how long. And I said, for, for me to get there, please don't put a beer in front of me, blah, 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 blah. And 50% of your mates go, fucking shut the fuck up. Here, ah, ah, we're going here, we're doing this. And in a me's going, ah, ah. <laughs> But then the other ones, like I'm down the pub and I could still get down the pub and grab a soda water and get on yeah. the pump. I love my horses. I love all my mates who race. I could watch racing all day and not punt anyway. But the boys go like that. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. And then you're like, oh, I'm, I'm good at I'm safe. Yeah. They're looking out for me as well as much as you. But then I found once you get past two weeks, three weeks, I don't, I don't need it. Yeah. And that's the same as anything. That's the same with changing your diet. That's the same with making a change in the morning. Two to three weeks, 21 days, the habit has started to and this isn't, this isn't me making shit up. This is legit how it works. Yeah. And then two, 300 days later, it is set in stone. Like me with 3 a.m. now, it's set in stone. I don't even think. It's just bang, up, 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 up. And I love it. And, yeah. and I love it. Oh, that's what I look forward to in the morning, Um, you know, the two hours to myself and, and training and doing that. But the progression I find is just everyone has it in them. Yeah. Or everyone's got it in them. And, and you and me spoke about this. And I just give you a couple of nudges. I just give you a couple of tools. But it's your decision. And it's your, like you said, that inner you that's screaming to make the fucking change. Yeah. And if oh, I've found it's really good to be honest with yourself now and listen to it and speak it. I mean, mate, I'm a bloke who's very outspoken or has been a fuckwit a lot of the time. So people either love me or hate me or that way, but that doesn't bother me anymore. I trust me gut 
And if I know that something's right in my gut, I'll go with it. If it's wrong, I'm going to die on my sword. But yeah. I'm happy not to let people point fingers in my face or tell me what I should or shouldn't be doing anymore. I'll make the wrong decision and I'll, I'll move forward from there. So, yeah. But, yeah, the, the alcohol and the party, I mean, it's getting a little bit different now with rugby league, but the two come hand in hand. That's it, they? yeah. And that's what, and like I was telling you, like with the Opens being a younger age demographic now, my boys in my footy team, like I've, I'll go and we'll do man of the matches upstairs in the clubhouse and stuff. And then I'm on, on the out, I'm looking at, at the fucking Facebook feed. They're doing all night vendors every yeah. oh, And, and like, we've been there. Yeah. Mate, oh, oh, man. Monday morning's rolling around and you're like, where yeah. am I? We're fucking yeah. a 240B. Yeah, bring it back. <laughs> Where were we at? So then I went went from when when triathlon started being a thing, I missed out on Rio. I you know raced in some cool places, you know, best yeah. song in France, and a race in Italy, and a race in London, um, Switzerland, uh, Japan. I had a, had a really good good race in Japan. I broke my frame and fell out of my chair, climbed back in, still got third, and that's what I thought. Yeah, like um, there's another guy and I were racing basically for the second spot to go to the Olympics, and I'd beaten him three races in a row. Yeah. Um, we had a stupid little time trial we had to do and I was sick and broken wheels and he beat me in the time trial, which was swim in a pool, drive, ride and run. Anyway, it still hurts. And then so he got to go to an event that I didn't and got points that I didn't. So he was ranked inside the top ten. The guy's awesome. We get along so well. It was, yeah. never, it was never his fault. No. And the problem was we're always pinched together instead of work together. Yeah. It was a head on head. That doesn't make people go faster. No. If we work together... Like, you're a brilliant swimmer, mate. You really are. He still swims amazingly, you know. He did really well in Rio. Yeah. Um, not sure if he's going to Tokyo. I'll find out in the next couple of days. But swims amazing. You know, well, I could ride pretty well and I could run very well yeah. in, in comparison to people. So we should have worked together. And then there was a time where I went to the AIS. I paid for myself, mate. I'm like, right, I'm going. This is what I need to do. So I paid for about five weeks, I think, to live at the AIS, met some Amazing people there, man. Steve Solomon, the guy who's going to be the flag bearer for the Australians at the Olympics. I've still got one of his T-shirts that so I've got. And, but when we were there, we started to figure it out. It's like, hang on a second. We'll both go faster if we work together. together. We don't have to be against each other, mate. Yeah. Like, help me swim faster. I'll help you run faster. Like, and then we'll both be better athletes. That's yeah. what we want. Bill's not going to be around forever. Yeah. But you and I can be around for a lot longer. And then I lost the plot after not making the Olympics for Rio. Just, like I said, sat at home for a year playing PlayStation. So I just sat there, mate, and just, I, I need, like, I didn't know where I was at. I was lost. Yeah. Financially broke, physically broke. Mentally, I was slowly starting to crack. Like, I was, in a way, I was happy just to sit and do nothing for a while because nothing was clicking. Put all this effort into being a diver, failed. Being all this effort into going to the Olympics, failed. And it's, but it's not a failure. They're no. lessons and they're, what do you need to do from that to grow? Don't think of everything as a loss. That's so right. Give it as a, okay, that's a learning thing. Very hard to see when it doesn't happen. It's very, very at the time, isn't it? Yeah. You can't see that hindsight. They speak about it now. But now, looking back on it, you're like, that helped me to get here. Oh, but at the time when it's happening, and I speak about this from losing my company after the GFC, after everything I've earned and working my whole life, not through lack of effort, you know, working 40, 50, 60 hour weeks, everything I earned out of rugby league as well to have it all taken off me by someone else who's doing the wrong thing. Doesn't sit very well for you, but looking back on it now, 
I wouldn't be where I am now with my mental fortitude and my attitude without that happening to me more than once, mind you, as well. Just doing that. And you search, like you said, you, you're sitting there, you, you got it inside you. You know what you got inside you, but you're just going, well, how did I get in this spot in my life? I'm too smart to be here. Yeah. Or, or what am I doing here? And then, but it doesn't, it's just a vicious cycle. So how old were you when, when this happened, when you missed out? So what have I been, what? 2016. Six years ago. So, yeah. yeah. So 30, 30, 30. that's what I mean. We're talking about that. You're out of your teenage kids. You're meant to be an adult. You're meant to be at a certain place in your life. You look at it. I had to hit reset again at 31. I was borrowing 20 bucks off dad. I was living rent free. You're saying you're at home, broke. Like that age group, I think it resonates with us because, you know, there's a lot of pressure or not even pressure. I think pressure within yourself to go, what? Wait, what? Why am I, how am I sitting on my ass here after I've done all that? Shouldn't there be a fucking golden pot of gold at the end of it yeah, for me? 100%. And when it's not, you got two options. Like you said, the power of choice. And sometimes it takes you a year or two years to make that other option, to choose that other option. For me, it took me two or three years to go. There was actually a day that I said to my missus, I said, fuck it, I'm done. I'm, oh, this is me. I'm happy. I'm happy drinking piss and doing this all on my, and I remember saying those words and that was like me giving up that day because I just had enough of just trying and getting fucking shit on or broken or not being what I was or I let the little man in my head beat me. I remember those words that day. I didn't make a change that day, but I remember them. I remember them ringing true in my head and I'll never forget them. I'll never forget them. So so what are you doing? You're sitting at home. Do you, do you know how quiet that little man is when you win? Yeah. And, and when you, you continue to win. He, he doesn't say nothing. He doesn't have shit to say. But like every day when you're trying to battle back, there was a consistent battle. And I, I speak about it a lot on my social media, so especially going through the journey and whatnot. I spoke about it, like little man didn't want to go today, but we got 10K out or little man wanted to give up at 5K or when I was even fatter, like, oh, I got 100 metres. And, you know, uh, so once people realise that you can talk about this stuff and they yeah. jump on board and they're like, oh, yeah, and then they speak to you about it openly and you're like, see, you can beat him. But the more you shut him up, he has no voice. But the one thing that I do know is he's ready to creep back in or as soon as you take your foot off the throat or yeah. something like that. He's ready to go, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, he's ready. Yeah. But like throughout your career, obviously you've been picking it and just taking little bits and everything to Nadia. So where do you see yourself now? Like obviously how old are you? 26. 26. You yeah. turned pro uh, last year, was it? I turned pro this year. This I year. turned pro, oh man, it was only a couple of months ago. I had um. Good. I think two months ago that I had, had my first version fight. Yeah. Before then, I was out of the ring for a year, just, you know, juggling family and whatnot. So okay, I guess so all it, let's go back to that. From there, you're down to Goldie. What happened after Goldie and a few more amateur fights through throwing themselves into it? Yeah, yeah. So I had um, amateur fights, went on a few trips. So I've been chasing the dreams. I think I just got to the point I had um, come off game trials for the... One for four. Yeah, a couple of four, I think. Anyway, yeah, so I had Commonwealth Game Trials. I uh, I made the finals to basically represent Australia at the Commonwealth Games. I made the finals for that. I fought a uh, tough dude, and he beat me. That shattered me, and I thought, you know what, fuck boxing, fuck everything. I'm moving home, and I ended up getting a job in the mines. So you did the full fucking crack the shit. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I was real dead. Like, I had fuck this shit. Because yeah. like, he put oh, man. so much time and energy into that. That was my life. Yeah. You know? And then to have it hang. Was it a split decision? Did he hedge gun? Yeah, it was a split decision. I um, I think it was my first competition wearing no headgear as well because yeah. when you're a senior, 
So I think it was my first senior competition. So as a man, yeah, finding men, you know, yeah. it was my first one. Got beat and it was close. I had a cut under my eye. I had blood rushing in my eye. I couldn't yeah. really see properly, but I still, I fought out of my skin and I fought probably the best I'd fought up until that point. It was just heartbreaking for me. So I was like, you know what, fuck the sport. I'm moving home and yeah. you know, I need to do something with my life. You know, I can't just be a bum. Yeah, yeah, Jason Rea. I've noticed that throughout our careers, sometimes like something like that and a reset can actually, like you said, you're back here now and you can see that even though that was disappointment a few years back, like, like we're talking about getting that fire reignites and you find that thing. So burnout is also one of the things that we see a lot in sport, especially with people who've been in it so long. If you've been in it since you're 14. Uh, yeah, 100%. You yeah. know, for me, it's for a long, long yeah. time, especially just the training regime and it's, you don't just train three days a week. No. You know what I mean? You train every day. Yeah. And um, a lot. If you're having that one day off, someone else isn't having that one day yeah. off and they're making ground on you and they're putting themselves in front. And especially with fight and that, everything, time and as much as it is oh, and they're like that. You go a week without training and then you're just that half a second behind or so. Yeah. Well, I tell you, you know, they crap the shoots. You went out, worked in the mines. I was in the mines for two years then. I'm not sure what age, but yeah, I was in the mines for two years. I made some really good mates and whatnot. Then I got a job roofing. I was roofing for almost a year. Started my roofing apprenticeship. It yeah. was it was shit house. I didn't want to do it. Yeah. It was just a bad job. So it wasn't my cup of tea. So then from there, I drank a heap of alcohol and I was drinking nearly every day. And, you know, I was going down a shit path. And then all of a sudden, I, I think I had a big night on the piss. I woke up and I said, you know what? Like, can't do this anymore. Yeah. So I said, all right, go into a gym Monday. And that's what I did. Yeah. Went to the gym on the Monday. And then where'd you walk in? Which one? I went to a, just a local one, Extreme Boxing. And, you know, it was enough to kind of get me off drinking every day. And, yeah. you know, I I still didn't mind a drink, but I'd drink a couple of times a month or whatever and, and yeah. not, not excessively. So, yeah. But see, that's what I find with people in, especially like contact sports, like rugby league, boxing, MMA, anything high impact or high adrenaline. Once you're not doing that adrenaline, there's a lot of guys who turn to alcohol and drink yeah. and that because it is that rush or you're still searching for that, you know. People and a lot of people get in trouble with that as well because mm-hmm. you go from being an extreme and adrenaline junkie taking these high risks and then all of a sudden you're not doing any of it and then like okay just be a normal person in society you just slide in right now it's it's very hard especially when you're young at that age to find your spot in the world and what you're doing especially when like I said you had your dream you had your Commonwealth Games I have to make it and then a simple yeah. decision it's like no you're not there. I think at that stage too, I still like, I wanted to better myself, but I didn't have all of the drive and I didn't have all of the, you know, motivation to really yeah. achieve anything. You know, yeah. I just wanted to, I just wanted to better myself and that was it. And then, um, back in the gym, back yeah. in the train and light that fire again. Yeah. And then I think once I stopped for a little bit, that was when my partner got pregnant. So, so in, in this time, you've met Jess. Yeah. 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 In this time, I met her actually, she was at work at the RSL and I was out on the piss, believe it or not. I didn't message her for a couple of days and I thought, oh, you know what, I might just message this girl. Yeah. Believe it or not, we're engaged with the kids. Isn't that a hard decision to make? Because Brisbane is our city, city metro winners and whatnot, and Gold Coast is second tier, but it is number two. If you're looking at it from a Queensland stage, then Brisbane's NRL and Gold Coast is Queensland Cup and then everything else comes around that. Yeah. As a decision that you need to make, do you go, oh, look, this horse might win, but, you know, there's 50 opportunities for me here on the Gold Coast that I know that I can get home yeah. over the next week. 
how hard is that to weigh up in your head? Like, what's your main goal? Is it obviously that's a hard one to ask because you want to win. You want to win big races and, yeah. and I know that. But at some times you've got to make a, a – like winning this premiership might set you up in three years to win on a big horse. But chasing in town, getting sixth, eighth, fourth, third, first, fourth, fifth might not set you up to get that good horse there. So how do you go about going through – or do you just let it unfold in front of you? What's your strategy? I want to go where the winners are. So obviously here generally I – get the plump of the rides. Um, so, you know, coming here for seven or eight rides and knowing that five of them are winning chances, that's more appealing to me than going to Brisbane for one. If I think the horse in town can win and it's worth going for, so there was a main horse, Beaufort Park, that I was going for. I think I won four Metros in a row mm. and then we started favourite in a Magic Millions race. Uh, to me, that was worth it. I did go to town and the last time I rode in town on a Saturday I didn't want to go. I thought the two horses were no good. One of them won a bad race the, the start before and then the second one was just a ride. And But at the time I was riding for the stable, I was sort of their main rider and they wanted me to go. But for me, that was pointless. I would have rather to stay here because I missed out on two winners at the Gold Coast that day. Mm-hmm. They may not have won if I was on them, but they still won. Yep. So for me, that's where I wanted to go, but I had, you know, pressure to go to town for them. But for me, it's it's where the winners are. I don't care if it's if I got eight rides here and I can ride three winners, or I've got one in town. I'm coming here every yeah. day of the week. You okay, know? so that's your decision. That's your thinking, making. Yeah. But when you started out, like you said, you got the pick now because you, you're the man. Yeah. <laughs> you're the big dick up here. <laughs> but mate, in the beginning, I was seeing you. I was seeing you getting getting home twenty dollar things. I was seeing you like you didn't have the pick of the thing there. So that's a that's a hats off to you there as well. But. Do you sort of know the stock that's coming through? Do you know these or do you do you have a manager that just says, look, these are your eight rides and then you do the form and, and have a look and, and whatnot at them or how does that work? Yeah, so like if you've written um, some track work for the, the trainers and that mm. you might have ridden the horse and, and sort of know what you've got underneath you, but most of the time it's sort of more faith in your manager to get you the best rides. And as you said, this season, like a lot of, I'm not, Look, I'm going to take. If you give me a dollar sixty, I'm going to take the ride on it because yeah. obviously it's that price for a reason. But I love riding horses that are sort of between that four to ten dollars. Yeah, because those short price favourites, so many things can happen in a race and go wrong. There's a lot of pressure there. Whereas I feel like if you're on a four to ten dollar chance in the market, they're good enough to win the race with the right ride. And most of the time, I go out there on a Saturday, and I'm the best jockey. So I'm going to give this horse the best ride that I possibly can. And if it's good enough, it's going to win and try to take some of that bad luck out of it. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I like riding long shot with us. Mm. I get more of a thrill out of that than a short price favourite. You, say you're on a $1.60 favourite. Do you get attention from other jockeys like in the race or would you do the same? Would you go, all right, I know that thing's going all right. I know that thing's $1.60. How can I get it beat or how do I beat it? Or do you feel like the race then is focused on what you're doing, not focused on what you should be doing on your horse or something like that. Does that affect other jockeys, do you think, in the line? Oh, yeah. There's, you get out in a race and there's, you know there's a jockey who's trying to beat you. When I ride in a race, I'm riding my horse to give it the best possible chance to finish it as good as it can. So I don't really... But will you think, be affected by going, all right, that's the favourite. Oh, he's taken off now. If I need I need to go as well. No, nah, nah, you just... No, nah. he wants to go... The I, Ice Man. I yeah, like it. You can watch, like I, I remember winning a, a six-horse field here over 2,200 metres. 
the whole field took off at the 600 and my horse was about $10. They all took off. I just let them go. I ended up three lengths behind them. I straightened up two lengths behind them and I won by three yeah. because they were all gassed. Yeah. So I go out there and ride my own race. Obviously, I'm aware what's around me. So like if there's a $1.60 pop in it, I'm not going out there to get it beat, mm. but I'm going out there going, okay, what do I need to do to beat that horse mm. in a way? You know, like if it's in front of me, it's like, okay, well, I want to stay here because that's the best horse in the race. If I follow it, he's going to get me into the race. If my horse is good enough, I'll pass it. If not, obviously I wasn't good enough. Yeah, I've or given it every chance though. It's sort of like, okay, like I'm one off the fence. The favourite's three wide. If I keep it there, that gives me a bit of chance to beat the horse. But I don't go out there with the intention to yes. beat a horse. Yeah. But if it helps me, I will. If it's going to cause more harm to my horse by, you know, Correct. for example, if you're not going to pull it up underneath you so you can sit in, so you can lock him in and yeah. then go, oh, hold on, I don't have a turn of foot on this yeah. horse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you need to, yeah, like you said, relax, get it in the stride, keep going. Yeah. Wow, well, good insight, Trav, good insight. <laughs> Horse racing, mate. That's it. So, what's the plans? What's the plans in the future for, with horse racing? Um, like I said, you, you've teamed up with Costa now. Costa went on a phenomenal run there, and yeah. I think you're on the back end of it as well, cheering, yeah. putting in some good rides. And I was even cheering even more, and <laughs> loading up some dollars. But, yeah. uh, mate, that's um, that's horse racing for you. It always turns. It's always. It's not as like you said, shiny days as, yeah. as always. I, I found that. I found that pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so when I was an apprentice, I. Had a bit of success. I won the Gold Coast Premiership first year, then won the Brisbane, then the next year ran second in the Brisbane and won the Gold Coast. And then I went to Sydney and thought last six months or five months of my time, I've got a bit of claim left. And um, I'd sort of, not opportunities had dried up, I shouldn't say that, but I just sort of felt like I wanted to change. And then my manager sort of had, at the time, had chased up an opportunity in Sydney. And I still to this day, I sort of regret going. Like I yeah. probably shouldn't have gone because I had to, Stephen O'Day, I was riding for him and I knew he had a lot of horses coming up that I was going to be sticking on. And anyway, I just thought I'd be kicking myself if I didn't go down to Sydney yeah. in case, like, I just thought, oh, if I went... You never down, know. Yeah, I thought if I go down to Sydney and I get this great job and I'm riding winners at Randwick and blah, 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 I'd be kicking myself if I didn't do it. Yeah. So anyway, I went down there. What's worse, regret of not going or, or regret of going and, and going, oh, I missed an opportunity back here. I'd, I'd yeah. 100% go, mate. The world keeps ticking. Well, that's it. Like, yeah. I, like, you never know until you go. So, yeah. like, I'm not... I, like, I, Did you invent that slogan? <laughs> yeah, no. But, um, <laughs> but like, like I, looking back at it, I wish I stayed, but I'm not... Regret, like, I'm not kicking myself. No, that's right. You move on from it. But, yeah, um, yeah. Long story short, it didn't work out. I come back and then... The opportunities at Stephen O'Day's had dried up only because he'd taken on Stephanie Thornton. Mm-hmm. So I understand that. You can't be a take on an apprentice and get putting another apprentice yeah, on. Yeah, there's no work for yeah. them. I'm paying, yeah. paying someone to do nothing. Yeah. sort of opportunities dried up a little bit and I struggled getting an opportunity in town. And, and that just goes to show racing how quickly it can turn. Like 100%. Like if you have, like you said, with having time off, like if you, you're riding all these winners and you take a little two-week holiday, some other jockey comes in and gets on those horses yeah. and they keep like... And it's just funny how you just can be one minute you're in and the next minute you're booted out. Yeah, like, yeah. And that's what I found. I struggled, opportunities dried up and I had to come back to the Gold Coast. And I was riding in town and going to Sydney, went no good and come back and I couldn't get a ride in town. So mm. it rattled me a bit and I had to go back to the Gold Coast. And I'm always like, it's pretty tough. Like a lot of jockeys, not, I'm not the only one. Like it happens to a lot of them. And that's where racing can be tough. Like it's mm. a bastard of a game at times how it's up and down. But... Yeah, I sort of was one of those persons that never really got to me. Deep down, I thought, why? Like, 
I want to be in town. I, I thought I should be in town, but I didn't let it worry me. I just thought, oh, well, I'll just go with what I've got, keep persevering at the Goldie. And then, yeah, I ended up building up a quite good connection with Costa and started riding a lot of winners for him. And then now I'm still at the moment doing most of my riding at the Gold Coast. But yeah. um, when the opportunities come, I get back to town and Costa sends horses there when they're ready to go and often get a good winner there, here and there. So Loves his stats, Costa. Yeah. He loves his winners, I tell but you. Yeah, so it's funny. I Just the last coming out of my time, I sort of went from being one of the top apprentices in Brisbane getting rides in town to just getting put back on the and that's just made me realise like it's it's racing it's funny like you gotta like you said like without the horse you're no good like yeah. you can believe that you've got a lot of talent and you can do this you can train you can be putting in all the work that you can possibly do and sometimes you think why isn't this just like why aren't I getting opportunities yeah. like, and that's where like an athlete like a footy player or somewhere where it's it's your fate so if you're a footy player and you're working off the scenes hard as to improve your game, you know, you can go out there and show that. Yeah. Whereas jockey, and I can be working as hard as I can at my style or doing my form, but without the horse, That's I, right. I can't go out there and go, look, this is what I've been doing. So do you communicate with any other trainers or anything? Does, or does yeah. your manager do? Because obviously you want to know for your training schedule, are you bringing this one back into work? Is this is it going to be good in eight weeks? Like yeah. should I just mellow right now and so then I'll I, amp it up so I can be I, um, good. I probably didn't ride a lot of outside work, which probably didn't help me as an apprentice. Mm-hmm. So I didn't build a lot of great connections. Like I was sort of tied down at Bruce Hills riding a lot of work where I probably wasn't getting a lot of race rides because you didn't have the stock there. It's probably the time where I probably should have been punching to ride work for everyone. Yeah. And then anyway, move forward net to now, I'm sort of – I'm not saying I'm not getting opportunities. Like, I'm enjoying it. I'm riding yeah. the Gold Coast. You know, as much as every jockey wants to be at the top, I just think, you know, if it comes, it comes. I'll just keep persevering. Uh, I think that's the best way to look at it, especially at your age. Mate, you're going to grow on your career. Yeah. And I think if you just keep ticking at that box, and I speak about it all the time, just moving that that little 1% forward, yeah. you'll look back in a year and you'll go, holy shit, I was riding three. Now I'm riding six. Yeah. You know what I mean? And six will turn into nine and next minute you, you got this flow that's on. All I, that's all I'm focused on is I'm happy where I'm at. I'm putting in the work. I'm riding track work every day. I'm not riding track work for a large variety of trainers, mm-hmm. but I, I ride track work for a bit of an income helping out Bruce Hill still. So yeah. I'm back with the old boss. Ride work six days a week for him. And then I do um, two or three days riding Costa's horses. So yeah. Costa's my main supporter, so I do make sure I'd get his in and then just going off the form that me and Costa have, um, riding winners for him, you're going to pick up other rides. So yeah, correct. as long as I help out sort of ride track work for the main support. That's exactly what it was, man. I swear to God. But mate, that's a testament to your work. You don't get like that yeah. or your fitness levels to go those 10 rounds or whatever your fight was. Like you were walking in the park, like you're coming back after those, after the rounds, especially in that Eric fight. And Two breaths and it looked like you were recovered, ready to go. Yeah. It just looked like you could go all day, mate. So that's a testament to your fitness and your coaching and your dedication as well. But let's concentrate yeah. on this uh, Australian featherweight title. So it's a vacant title and you're coming after it against what is it, Nestor Bollum, I believe. Yeah. And yep. he's yep. a uh, he's a Olympian. He fought in the Athens Olympics and for Nigeria, but he is based here in New South Wales. Isn't he? Is he down in Sydney, is it? Yeah. Is that where the fight's taking place? Yeah, yeah. I'm going into enemy territory, so um, 
It is what it is. I'm quite surprised actually. I didn't. We didn't go looking for this fight. They came and asked for the fight. They asked us. So they obviously believe in themselves. And obviously, I've taken the fight because anyone, I'll fight anyone, anywhere, anytime because I believe in myself as well. So how's that? Like, People pick and choose fights, and then you're just like line them up. Let's go. Yeah. It's legitimately nearly an experienced fighter against your your lightning power and speed. And he's probably at the back end of his career and thinking he can outsmart you, but he doesn't know what, you know, you're on this movement train that's just going like that, like upwards, upwards trajectory. So is that what be the plan will be? Like what's your year look like leading into this fight? As far as I know, so I've, I've got this one on the 30th of June. Um, hopefully I come out of that unmarked or will uncut. Out of the 10-round fight, I hope to, you know, finish it early, stop him. So that way I'm uncut. I back up two weeks later. A tough dude, that'll just, that'll, you know, make my ratings just go up a little bit more. And then I, I believe we've got a, we've got a, a plan in the making of um, going to America for a three-week training camp. We're really um, knuckling down this year and and hopefully we we can even possibly get a fight over there in america while we're there cool so two things i want to i really want to come back and find out about that american camp because that sounds interesting can you just explain to people at home who don't really understand like the ratings within boxing and, and how that works like when you said oh hopefully i'll come out of that uncut i'll go into this fight and that'll boost my ratings if i can get a win there but how does the rating systems work in to be able to get you know title fights and all that the more active you are the more you win you know, you jump up the ratings and say you're rated number 20 in the world, you can fight someone that's that's within the, the top 15 and then you're in the top 15 and then you can, you just climb, climb, climb and then they're the bigger fights and they're, they're the titles, they're the regional titles, they're the, you know, intercontinental. Yeah, you don't really get a chance if you're lingering around 30. You have no. to do your due do diligence. You have to take names above you. You have to take scalps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're not yeah. just going to go... Yeah. Rocky Balboa style here, yeah. fight Apollo Creed for the title. No one wants to fight a nobody, you know what I mean? So you need okay. to – that's why it's so important to be active and keep progressing and working your way up. So that's um, the fight game. As you get closer yeah. in that, is that where the purses start to increase? Because people yeah. think like boxers make money. Like You just don't make money at all. No. You know, you're, you're no. on a low-end budget. There's so much that goes into it for a minimum payday unless – It costs money. Yeah, unless you get to – a super title fight or something like that. And then it comes down to promotions as well. So, and this is the reason why you're on the podcast, mate. If you can just take scalps along the way and build your following and build your profile, or then when people come to pay to see your performances, because at the end of the day, as long as, as well as being an athlete, you're an entertainer. Like it's entertainment at the top level. And at the- When I fight, it's all action. I've always gone in there and you hit me once, I'm going to hit you twice. And I've always been- in exciting fights. Every fight I've been in has been exciting, whether I've won or lost. As much as I want to be the goal where I want to be, I'd love to be there now already. Yeah. I think if I did things differently and chose a different path early on, I think I could have maybe been somewhere different. But I chose the path I chose, did what I did. So now it's just about getting back. Yeah, but that's hindsight. You can't. No, no. I, I know what you're saying. I'm like, I'm, you relive all these moments. and like, if I just did that there... Yeah. You tweak this a bit. But the point is like, I always talk about it. I don't know how many times I say over and over 0.0, 0.0 or starting yeah. again. And then everything is moving forward from here. So 
It's yeah. It's like this is me path. This is the go. Yeah. But you got to live and die by your decisions as well. Yeah. Like I don't regret anything. I've enjoyed every bit of it. I still enjoy riding. I'm still hungry to get where I am, get where I want to be. So I think, and because I am still younger, I think you know, like they, a lot of them say that you're not probably a fully furnished rider to you in your 30s. So I think I've still got five or 10 years to really grow, polish myself. So. Pick up some sneaky little jag-like yeah. secrets. Like, guess what? If I do this, I'm going to go bang inside, so, yeah. outside. Let's just keep um, over the next five or 10 years, as long as I'm still hungry and want to achieve those things, I just work hard. And yeah, hopefully five or 10 years later, I'm at a, talking a different story. So what are you doing outside of racing? What's your free? You still surfing? Banging them out? No, so I haven't been surfing a lot lately. Why? I just uh, lost the bug for it a little bit, I think. Comes and goes, doesn't it? Yeah. So oh, yeah. I, I haven't, I've probably surfed once in the last two months. Wow. And I, when I, the times I go out, it's only ordinary. So yeah. it's just like, oh, what's the point? It's the same as anything though. Like you got to get those first two or three surfs out of the way, find your feet in the wax again. And yeah. oh, mate, why, why, why did I stop doing this? Yeah. But then when you ask that question, next minute it's flat for two weeks. Yeah. And like, so, oh. so I went through a phase where, because I'm always on and off with it. And mm-hmm. I went through a phase probably six to 12 months ago where I was, Went through about three months of surfing every day. Got the bug for it. I was loving it. And then I kind of went off again. But lately, I yeah, haven't been surfing much. And I was just, as we were talking earlier, finding the balance with training and that. I've really slowed up the training in the gym because I was sort of bulking a little bit. Trial and error with a few things. Now it's more still do me boxing training twice a week. Do the occasional little run or swim. Uh, I was getting into the running a bit there actually, but I find it hard to sort of maintain and keep yeah yeah because it does drain a lot of calories and a lot of energy yeah so i was run every day i'd run three or four days a week for about two three weeks and then i've stopped running yeah but i've stuck to the boxing i get i like the boxing twice a week with a pt getting some good hands on you too yeah so i just i just like that's i feel like it's good movement and i now it's more probably maintaining by doing less I feel like sometimes you try and do too much and then I sort of burn out. Well, that's that rolling peak as well. Like you said, like before we were talking about all the food and everything and being absolutely 100% flying, you can't stay there. No. So it's like there and then timing your run, all right, I'm going to give you 12. Like I'm 10 weeks or 11 weeks into the marathon now. Left me run late, coming off back a few injuries. But I know that 10 or 11 weeks will be nearly enough to get me there. You know, and then, you know, probably 16 and I'll be peaking where I should be and then I'll have to back it off before to eight and I'll have to go for another 12 to 16 and then I'll be probably at my absolute peak yep. performance. But that's a, what's that? 16, 32 plus an eight week image. That's 40 weeks. That's nearly a year process. Yeah. It's gone crazy. right there. Like, and I know like I need 16 weeks to pit it and I need eight weeks to back off and I need 16 weeks to go again. Yeah. That's, that's done. It's crazy. Yeah. But now that I've got the diet and everything under control, my weight's good. I can afford to back off a bit. Yeah. And now riding more track work, going up to Brisbane of a morning a couple of times a week, riding a lot of track work here on the Gold Coast and more just trying to ride more often. Now that my weight's good, I'm, I can ride those lighter weights through the week. I can ride on the Sunday. Enjoying it as yeah, well. so it's good. You know, pretty confident we were going to win and um, jump from the inside barrier. Good, I'm on the best horse. We'll take bad luck out of it. I'll press forward and lead. And uh, this other jockey from... The outside barrier, just he scrubbed the ears off his to, to cross the field. He really wanted to lead, so I was happy to let him go. And he kicked th- about three lengths clear. But coming into that first corner, he threw the anchor out uh, quite abruptly. And I sort of saw it all unfolding. And I grabbed my horse. I, you know, I went for one hold to try and ease it up. 
Uh, but he just stopped the tempo too quick. And as I was going for the second hold, I sort of went off. Like I knew I was going to fall. So when you talk about a first hold, that's like you grab the reins and you try and reef it underneath you. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got to let it go and, and grab more rein yeah. and then pull it right underneath you. Yeah. So, so and because he stopped so fast, you've actually gone one. And by the time you went to grab the second one, you were up. It was yeah. too late. I was on heels. I had nowhere to go because uh, I was in the box seat. I had the fence to my inside. And because he stopped that quick, the other three horses in the field had all made their way up around me and outside him. Mm. So I had a wall of horses in front of me. And yeah, unfortunate for me, I, I've clipped heels. Uh, my horse has blundered and just sort of sent me head first into the poly track. And it's probably the, one of the worst surfaces you could ever fall on. Yeah, look, wow, man. So it's like hitting a road with what? Bits of shit on it, basically. So yeah, I, it's hard to describe. Like, because if you fall off on, on the grass, you can skid and roll and you move. This track, you don't. Like pretty much where you land is where you stay. So, so it just wants to grip you. It just, just grabs you. And, yeah, you can feel it too when you hit it. It feels like it's it's almost like a bloody horror movie. It feels like you're sucking through quicksand or something through yeah, the ground. Yeah. yeah. So that's happened. You've, it's knuckled. Yeah. And, and we're going to show the video. Trav's been good enough. He's, he's got a couple of videos of it at different angles. And you can actually see it's knuckled. You've got on heels. You've gone over. But it's thrown you over and the way that you've come over you've basically it's flung you and you've landed directly on your neck was it or yeah, straight on my head so, so straight just, bang yes head into the ground and then obviously the momentum like you were saying like the cushion track has grabbed you and then your momentum's basically flung your body and gone bang yeah sort of was it really. <laughs> no nah, no nah, nah. i went down head first and the track just grabbed me. <laughs> yeah. So I pretty much, I would have stayed in one spot except my hand was caught in the rain. So as the horse took off, it flipped me over. Oh. Um, that's what the flip was. Yeah. See, whereas if this was on a, a turf track, when I hit like that, I probably would have skidded a little bit more, whereas I just sort of went bang, bang. So I landed sort of right on the top of my head. So I split my helmet and because of the way I landed, it caused two compression fractures. Uh, so of the... T6, T7 were broken. I fractured my occipital condyle, so the base of my skull, where it sort of sit, joins your spine there. And then yeah. because of the hand was stuck in the reins, when the horse flipped me over, it sort of did some damage there and then it run me over. So I crushed all the tendons and ligaments in my left hand as well. Man, that's intense. How much does the horse weigh? About 560 kilos. How much do you weigh? <laughs> I was 56 that day. So tenfold. You got this tenfold moving at, what were you going at, about 60 k's an hour? Yeah, 60, 62 k's. <laughs> and then they got metal shoes on. So what actually happened from there? What did you have to do? Did you have, straight to hospital? Like, yeah. how, how long? Uh, so I was knocked out for about three minutes. So I don't really know what happened then. Everything was just black and um I thought I was, I didn't know whether I was going to heaven or hell, but you know, she was a bit dark. I thought I saw a light, but I might've been going the other way. I don't know. But, um, so yeah, when I woke up, it was quite scary because I knew I'd fallen, but I didn't know how long I'd been out for. And they said I had, like, I couldn't remember things straight away. And when I come back to it, it, it was like looking at the sun, everything was blurry. I couldn't quite see properly. All I could hear was voices and I could see about six shadows over me. So you've got paramedics, stewards and yeah, I was very, I'm thankful and very grateful that one of my fellow jockeys, Sam Collett, actually came out and that kept, calmed me down because she, hers was the only voice that I recognized. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was just talking me through it to try and keep me calm because obviously I couldn't move, like my back was broken, 
the pain in my chest. I couldn't breathe. I was starting to get like panic and yeah. freak out a bit. So she calmed me down and loaded me up into the ambulance and it probably took about 40 minutes to get me in the ambo off the track, wait for another ambulance to come because, you know, they want to finish the races. So they left me in the parking lot <laughs> till another ambulance come and they took me off to the uni hospital up there at Sunny Coast. Wow. Like, man, that's intense. Like, that's yeah. proper. And to say, you know, to listen to you go, like, well, there's a light there. Well, is that heaven? <laughs> yeah. Like, or am I going to come out of it? Like, yeah. and that split decision, you know, that panic, like, oh, I can't breathe. Like, I need oxygen. I need oxygen. And people talk about it all the time. Like, oh, I'd do this. I'd do that. Until you're in that situation like that and you're in that proper fight or flight mode, like you got no idea what actually living is. And like you must have been like just on another racing and like you said, like what's happening what's and and not being able to be knocked out as well. You wouldn't have been able to grab information. You were trying to think of information or something or think what's going on or what happened. But your brain obviously being KO'd wouldn't be able to go, oh, that's right. That's that happened. That happened. That happened. happened." Like all I remember is I remember falling. I remember seeing the like sort of caramel color of the cushion track as I went down and then everything after that, it's like, shit, I remember seeing that, but this is not what I remember. Like what is going on here? Like why are these people standing over the top of me? Why am I in pain? Because I couldn't breathe. They couldn't give me painkillers because I couldn't suck the whistle. So I just had to wait till I got to hospital before they oh, could give me kidding. some morphine. So You're kidding. So you're feeling every single little bit, every movement, every like slight little bump of the wheel. Is yeah, like excruciating feel, agony. Feel it all. And when they're moving my body around, obviously we don't know what's broken and that, but knew something was wrong with my back because of the pain I was in. Didn't know about the skull and my hand and, you know, paramedics, they're not trying to diagnose you with things. They're trying to keep you alive. Yeah. So they don't care. They care to a degree, you know, about trying to move you in the safest way. But at the end of the day, they just want to keep you alive. And so, you know, every time they rolled me or moved me, lifted it, I, I felt it all. Oh, that's so. intense. The fourth weekend I got there. So I knew, I knew I, I've obviously been caught on taking that printer because he would have sent someone round to that club. No, he would have turned around and gone, where's the printer? Like, uh, and good and old Jules or what was the name? I can't remember her yeah, name. Good old Jules would like, Kyle's just around here picking it up. Yeah, Kyle's <laughs> just been round and took the, uh, took the printer. So he'd be like, fuck, but. So I knew he knows where my caravan is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like how he knows, I don't know. But I slept with a crowbar under my pillow, me and Gypsy on the bed. Like door was locked. Like if he come round, he would have got it straight in his head. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I was that desperate. Like no one's stopping what I'm doing. Like and you're going to come round. Take, but I just had a feeling he wanted to catch me in the club, you know, and he never did come round to the caravan. So anyway, I'm still going. Like, I knew I was going to get caught. But I just kept on getting as much money in as I could because the money that I was saving, I was saving for a house, a deposit to move into a house and obviously buy more printers and more cameras because I wanted to get more clubs because I wanted to emulate what he was doing. You know, that's what I wanted to do. The fourth weekend I got there, the managers come in and said, oh, I've got, I started packing up and setting up the printer. And he's like, oh, we're using this room tonight. You've got to set up in this other room. Downstairs in the club, it's like a a two-story club. So downstairs in the basement, uh, there's one door in and one door out. And as soon as I come through that door, I heard the doors locked behind me and I turned around and my, my boss is stood there with three other guys, like meatheads, ballheads, scar on the face and that, do you know what I mean? Like gangster-looking type guys. And uh, all I remember saying is I'm desperate. I was desperate, do you know what I mean? And uh, this guy just jumped out and banged me, man, cleaned me out in the corner, stamped all over me. I took it, man, do you know what I mean? Like I know I you did had it. To. I had yeah. to, man, like, 
There's there's no sorry. There's no this is what this is deserved. He was not in his right mind if you, he did not do that to you. Oh, you know, mate. switch shoes. If someone did that to you right now, you'd be doing exactly the same thing, wouldn't mate, you? And I've got a feeling he's probably going to happen. <laughs> <you know? laughs> no, he nah, may look. No, nah, you, you paid your dues. But that is, that's paying your dues, isn't yeah. it? Like, so. I'll tell you what, though. I walked in that club with like a big big smile on my face. Hey, ladies, you all right? And then, yeah, they, they knew what was I coming. I come walking out with an empty bag and a fat lip and a black eye. Like, right, like, right. I got on that bus. As soon as I got on that bus to go home, I cried my eyes out, mate, all the way home. Yeah. I've not cried like a baby like that for a long time. Do you yeah. know what I mean? But Because it had built up over them weeks and weeks of like, just emotional roller coaster, like of, of what I went through. So how'd you end up out here? Where, where did Australia come into it? What happened? So I was in Magaluf for six months. I mean, the time of my life, like literally the best time of my life. Everything that I've ever been through led up to this moment. I'm absolutely living my life right now. I'm banging birds every fucking day. The unit that I was living in was right next to the nightclub. It was so easy. I've never seen so much money. Like I'm earning money every night. Never took a night off. I'm pissed every night as well for free. I'm getting free beers from the bar. And then from then on, the season was ending there. So um, we went to Ibiza and we went to Tenerife. In the winter, Tenerife is pretty busy because it's still warm. It's just off the coast of Africa. I lived out there for um, probably about two months and I got into a bar there and the guy who owned the bar, he was from Manchester. So when I approached him, straight away, I'm in there, started working every night there. And I went back to England to get some more stock. I was sleeping at a friend's house. And when I woke up in the morning, I could feel my legs and my feet were like jelly, like rubber, and I couldn't coordinate my legs properly. And I started getting pins and needles in my hands and my feet. I didn't think nothing of it. And my mate was turning up to take me to the airport to go back to Tenerife. I got in his car and I knew there was something not right, but I just wanted to get to Tenerife. When I got off the plane, I got a taxi to my unit. I woke up in the morning and I was literally paralyzed. Like I was, body was dead. They thought I'd had a stroke. So they took me to the hospital and it took them about two days to find out what was wrong with me. And I had Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, which is basically a life-threatening condition. And 80% of people that get it don't ever actually walk again. And um, yeah, so I was in the hospital. Couldn't remember what day it was. Couldn't tell you what month it was. Like I was so disorientated. I was in there for quite a while. And the guy who owned the nightclub, George, because he, he was from Manchester, he was looking after me, bringing stuff to the hospital and that. He was the only person there. I wasn't speaking to my mum at the time. Obviously, none of my family I'm speaking to, so none of them knew what was going on. Basically, I had to learn how to walk again. It took me about two months to actually properly walk again. Um, people who get Guillain-Barre syndrome, they either... They either don't ever walk again or they walk with a, a crutch or a, a walking aid or something like that or they basically die. You know, it's a life-threatening condition and I was probably the lucky 20% that, <laughs> that pulled through. And, and from then on, obviously, I couldn't go through um, therapy, like physiotherapy or anything because I went entitled to it in Spain and I, had, and I couldn't really go back to work again. So I had no choice but, but to go back to England and just sort my head out, <laughs> you know what I mean, just recuperate. Um, ever since then, I never felt like like whatever drugs they give me in that hospital must have done something to my body chemically because it took all my confidence and I never felt the same person again. Do you know what I mean? And it took a while. I'd say it took two years for me to actually fully recover from from everything. Like, yeah, right. Wow. 
from then on, I was like, right, I'm going, I'm going to go somewhere. Like, because obviously I'd had a taste of Spain. I knew if I stuck around there with that money, it wouldn't last long. My mum, all my mates are into taking drugs and partying, like living for the yeah. weekend. So I knew if I, and I did, I got wrapped in it for a couple of weeks. Do you know what I mean? And my mate was like, what are you doing? You need to fucking go. Do you know what I mean? Get yeah. on that plane and go somewhere. Otherwise it's gone and you're back to square one again. And that's what I did. I, I got the money. Um, Summer Bay popped into your head. Yeah. Beaches. Oh, man, away. Yeah. I'm like, fuck. Blonde Aussie chicks. Yeah. Tanned up. Well, I, I actually had a friend who uh, lived in Perth and he was the one who said, why don't you fucking come over here? So that's what I did. Jumped on a plane. Perth first. Best movie I ever made because as soon as I got here, the first thing I did when I got here, I went out around the nightclubs and I noticed where's all the fucking people that are selling the pictures. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And then that was it. Like ever since that day, I was like, I can fucking do it here. No one's doing it. Do you know what I'm doing? And Physically, it wasn't too bad. It's a mental thing. It just got mentally draining. And you start having days where you just hate it. You just don't want to turn up. You still go, you get the job done because muscle memory is just sort of, you can still do it. But there were many a day when I just didn't feel like doing it. But I'm not the sort of guy who will take a ride and not turn up. But if I got up one morning and went, just last thing I want to do is go to races, I'll still go. I'll still get the job done. But there were plenty of days that, that were like that where I, I didn't feel like going. but still battled through but as I said since taking a bit of a step back and just really still working hard but working a bit smarter I found I'm enjoying more and this will sound silly that I'm riding less winners now but I think I'm riding better because I'm going there in a better frame of mind I'm not yes. getting you know, I'm not getting as good opportunities because I'm not riding as often and that's going to happen but I'm happy and outside of racing as well I'm happier yeah which then reflects on my riding and I honestly believe that when the opportunities are coming now, I'm, I'm probably riding them better than I was when I was riding all those winners. Yeah. Well, I see that as well. To elaborate on that is there's two ways out of it, out of a situation like that. It's to double down and 10x what you do and just, you know, take another 700 rides, do 1,400 rides and beat yourself into oblivion to love it again. Or it's to hit reset like that. And I speak about this all the time on the podcast and I speak about it within my stories and that. And it, it's called point zero. So it's actually hitting that reset button and not chasing your former self, not chasing those 100 winners or that season that you had two or three seasons ago. It's, it's like exactly what you just said. All right, I'm enjoying it more now. And my goal isn't, oh, I've got to, you know, you spoke about how you got to those 100 winners. It was always beating last season, beating last season, improving, improving, improving. You can't continue to improve once you get to 120 winners, 130, 150 winners. That's so hard to replicate that effort. So being able to let that go and, you know, actually establish that achievement and go, that was a fucking amazing season. You know, that was a highlight of my career, but that doesn't define me and I don't need to better that again. Each time hitting reset, point zero, start again. And then we're moving forward from there. You know, it's a 1% gain rather than starting at negative 100 and going to negative 99, you know, in 10 weeks, you, you, you're looking at, you know, positive 10 instead of negative 90. It's a whole different mind frame and structure and it can really refresh, refreshes me all the time. I, I force myself to do it all the time. So your way into it, Dill, I guess, would have a little bit more structure rather than the grind that your old boy's done because you've got his knowledge to sort of share. And we've seen that already when, whose decision was it to make sure that you finished out your apprenticeship or stay in Newcastle? before going into town. Because I remember reading something back in the day going, no, look, we're going to you know, spend the next three months right out the Newcastle Premiership and then next season or next year, once the season starts, we'll go to town. 
and start chasing some big winners there. So who sort of come up with that plan? That was pretty well dad's plan because like you said, his, that's where his knowledge kicked in and haven't seen it all and seen a lot of other apprentices come through and seen the ones that succeeded and didn't. And along with Chris as well, you know, he obviously had to be on, mm. but him and dad worked that out between them and, and sort of mapped out that plan for me, which I was all for. And, you know, the way things have gone, you can tell that was the right play and it's been the right play with a few apprentices just before me too and the success they've had. So that's probably going to be the long-term plan with most apprentices now because there's been a lot of success doing that with not only myself, but a couple other apprentices too. And it's just the right way to go about it. You learn so much doing it and you obviously reap the rewards when the time's right. But when you get to that level, the one percenters count and little things like this, you know, but the age old saying, you can lead a horse to water. You can't make him drink. You can have all this plan mapped out and without Dylan's will and perseverance and drive as well, none of this works. So as much as it uh, hats off to you, you know, senior, junior, mate, keep plugging away, keep getting at it. So Dil, we were talking about mistakes and look, this isn't a mistake from you, but it's actually a I call you Mr. Consistent Giver because like I said in the beginning of the, the podcast, you're just trustworthy in what you do. It doesn't matter what you ride, you'll show up, you'll give it the best opportunity and everyone knows that. There's so many people who give up or this ain't going to win today, they'll pull it up. And you can see your riding in Dylan's as well. But Dill, I've seen you lift things that shouldn't have been lifted home, okay? And like, there's also times when you're like, nah, and you wouldn't blame you for just sitting down and going, there's, there's a second. But I've seen you go, nah, and just start like pushing, pushing, getting over the top of them, giving it to all you can. It might have been in a maiden or it might have been on the weekend. But this one, two weeks ago, it was on Wrathful. It was, it was a Wrathful yeah. in the Midway Handicap at the 72. It's on that one because you're giving a shit right early. Yeah. You dropped it out the back. It's wet. You're, what, 16 lengths off them, coming around the turn, and then you've got $201 shots boxing you in at the back. I was on your big as well, and uh, I'm shaking my head. I'm going, oh, this thing ain't going to win. But um, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how, how much you, you sat down and wrote. And look, this is what I'm talking about, um, and this is why I'm so impressed with your ability to, to not give up, and that's what this podcast is all about. I guess the question would be, what were you thinking coming around the turn, trying to nudge your way out with these, you know, three or four sluggers going in front of you on a heavy, what was it, a heavy nine or heavy 10 or something yeah, like that? Probably close to a heavy 10. My probably exact thoughts were, fuck's sake, this is going to be just, I never sort of normally do the things I did, but I always try and pride myself and ride my horses how they're going. And even knowing the horse being the casual bugger he is, he was just, sort of on and off the bridle and, and every time I wanted to pop and go, he wasn't underneath me. So by the time I would kick him in the guts to get him to go, like you said, some slow horses kept taking my spots and two, three times, you know, I lost the spot I should have been in. But, you know, I just don't feel the need to, to send horses out wide and make them cover ground when they're not going good. But I should have just backed him a bit more. And thankfully enough, once I did get him in clear air, he's, his serious ability got me out of trouble there. Oh, yeah, mate. I was... Uh... I was sitting down on the bar stool, just like <laughs> bring, bring it home. As I had all the boys, I was like, "Boys, watch this, check this." Dill's going to get this one home, and and then coming around the turn, I was I was like, oh, trying to put my hoodie on over my head and took it off. There he is, he's gone. I told you, I fucking told you. But um, mate, I guess that's the exciting of racing and the and the ability as well. For you, what's your mentality? What's driving you between a maiden and a different ride? Because I see you ride everything out. How was that instilled and who taught you that? Or was that just something that comes from within? 
Yeah, like like you said, you know, dads. I grew up obviously watching dad and spent a lot of time with dad. And like you touched on before, just consistency was the thing. You know, he was when I sit in the room with him, he wasn't going, "Oh, I'll try on this one. I won't try on this one." You know, you just you just turn up again. But you know, the, the right way to look at it is, is Chris and some of his main owners who have supported me from day one when I was riding at Tamworth and Tari Maidens and. Now they're giving me city winners. It's just as important to them to get their maiden winners in the bush as it is to win in town. You know, they've got their owners. Like Chris has got his owners to answer to and the owners have got their, like the syndicates have got their owners underneath them to answer to. So if they're looking after me, you know, I've got to be out there doing my best because, you know, if they're sending me there and put me on them horses, it's because, you know, that they're, they're trusting me to get the job done and give their horse every chance and give them their feedback. You know, you, you can't just be having half a go. It's... It's the type of job if you have half a go, like for example, raffle, you know, you'd say that was half a go and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, trouble. But you just right. you know, you gotta you gotta turn up and do the thing for the people who supported you. You know, if I'm turning up to the country meetings and only having half a go because it's, you know, quite unquote just a country meeting because I ride in Sydney, it's just it's not a good look and not a good attitude and, and you can't build that clientele if you're if you're only trying in certain areas because how can they guarantee when you're at that area where it looks like you're trying, you're not going to because you've got something better. you just got to turn up every day and, and give it 110% and just make a habit of it. I see a lot of what you do is always slow and repetition. Okay? Yeah, we we love fundamentals. You know? we, um, I personally think that is where I improve the best. Yeah. If I'm doing my fundamentals correctly, it doesn't matter about the sparring that I've had in the camp. It doesn't matter about the hard workouts, those bag sprints, those hill sprints. If my fundamentals are correct, that's when I feel like I'm boxing at my best. Yeah. So constantly focusing on my fundamentals, keep rehashing and have good sparring sessions back to my fundamentals, back to my fundamentals, back to the jab, back yeah. to, you know, simple footwork drills because that's where I'll improve my well, What is that? So for people who aren't fighters or, or listening at home, what's your fundamentals? What do you go back to? I, mean, I know so you just, mentioned the jab. Yeah, you know, simple footwork and, and jabs and just the art of boxing itself. You know, you can like break them down. What works, yeah. you know, and where you need to move, and the position you need to be in. Do you know what I mean? Like, and so then when it happens, it's, it doesn't even think. It just yeah, it's, just do it. I, I just do it like it's second nature, like anything. So you just got to like it. It's like anything. If you want to be a good surfer, you've yeah. got to practice that. You've got to practice that. You got to practice the simplicity. Getting up on the board—that's the first thing. You you cannot surf away if you can't get up on the board. Correct. So you've got to practice that get up. You've got to practice that get up. Same. You cannot be good at boxing if you can't jab. Yeah. So you've got to practice that. You've got to practice that. You've got to practice that. Doesn't matter about you know all those rounds you do and all that all the fancy stuff. You've got to practice this. Yeah. Otherwise, you were never going to make it to the top. Yeah. You know, you look at world champions. You look at someone like Floyd Mayweather. All right. So you could say in the modern era, he's probably the most successful boxer that has been, just for the fact that. And the one thing that makes him so successful is you look at him after his fights. The damage he takes it's so minimal. Yes. So half of the sport. This means this is going to make the sport sound really really simple. Half of the sport is about not getting hit. Yeah. The other half of the sport is about hitting. So if you're getting hit, right, and still hitting, you're missing out on 50% of what the sport is. You know, you need to not get hit. So focusing on longevity, being defensively sound, and then focusing on then implementing my attack plan is what really is what we work on. Yeah, right. So it's just longevity. I'm, I'm really big on longevity. You know, yeah. one shot in, in a sparring session can fight just two minutes. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm, I'm in no means perfect at that yet. Yeah. But I'm getting better and better every day. The thing you've got to watch out for in boxing is punch you can't see. So, if you're fundamentally correct in your defense, 
and in the way you're moving and your position in the ring, you cut that shot that you don't see somewhat out of the equation. Don't get me wrong, there's always there's always a chance of being punched like there's always a chance of being punched. Do you know what I mean? But if you can you can be sound and you understand where you are and you're fundamentally fundamentally correct, then you you know you half those chances or you you, know, you minimize, minimize those chances of being hit. You know, so focus it that that's sounds really easy to do. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Fun. You know, and it, it don't get me wrong doing that, standing there doing the drills, yeah, it may, it may be easier. Putting that in my fire is a completely different story. Yeah, that takes totally. years and years and years because you're not just going against someone from Pavilion, Abilene Pavilion at two o'clock. In the morning. Yeah. You know, you're going against another trained fighter, another trained killer, another elite athlete who wants to do the exact same thing to you. So, do you know what I mean? It, it, it makes it a lot harder. When I was overloading and training and ridiculously fit, I'd get to game days and nothing bothered me. Like yeah. it, nothing within the game. I was never blown out. I was never gasping for air or anything like that. So it has its benefits. Running's a different different kettle of fish. It's a different beast, I believe, because the impact and the consistent impact and the long time yeah. out there that you need to be, especially in your distance running, I believe is completely different to three rounds, high intensity, yeah. high heart rate, yeah. you know, pressure situation. Same with rugby league. High intensity intervals, basically suck them in, breathe, go again. You know, for eighty yeah. minutes of forty and forty, long, repetitive. I know what you're saying, and you just, you just like basically agreed with what I said. It was you know you're overtraining, but rounds came easy. Everything came easy back then. Yeah. So yeah, well, I, I think you need to train at that level to be at that level. I think that's overtraining for us now, looking at it. But people who are in that zone, in that zero point zero zero one percent. It's not overtraining. It's yeah. who they are and it's what they need to do to maintain that level of fitness where you're at because you're at a completely different level of fitness at that stage in your life. Yeah. I used to try and like I'd do one day that was like sort of more heavier on punching and then the next day I'd try and do more kicking just to give your shoulders a rest. Like you, you just end up like almost like getting really seized up just from punching so much. Yeah. But yeah, it was just really, really, really hard training, loads of running. And I think it would have been five or six weeks of training specifically for that guy. And then like I was walking, I think I was walking around about probably 73, 74 kilos. If I was fit, you know, if I was, if I'd blown out a bit, I'd be sort of, you know, 77, 78. What was the fighter? KGs. And the fight was at 69 kilos, (sighs) 69.5 kilos. So I'd gotten down to, I think. I was sort of at the gym the week of the fight. I was probably around sort of 71 kg or something yep. like that. So I sort of trimmed off the last like couple of kgs and we, we the fight was on the Sunshine Coast. So we got to Sunshine Coast and I was with my uh, old mate Liam Badger. Shout out Liam. He did really well in his career. He's not fighting anymore, but he's, he's just still a really good mate now. Me and Liam Badger got to the weigh-in because he was fighting too. And just as we're about to walk into the gym where they're holding the weigh-in, Robbo, the trainer, comes down to me and goes, oh, how are you feeling? I said, oh, gasping for a drink, but good. And he goes, it's a change of plans. I go, oh, what? He goes, oh, um, Cam Hilton's broken his rib sparring this week. And I'm like, what? How could he have broken his rib? You know, how, what was he sparring for? Week like, off, the week yeah. Of the he goes, oh, I don't know. It's happened. He said it's um, – he's – just he can't fight, he's really injured. But he said you can still fight and they're still going to let you fight for the belt. It's just against the different guy. And, and this, the different guy was Ryan McDonald. And I'm like, oh, man, 
Ryan McDonald that's worse than than the the Cam Hilton. I didn't want to fight him. Out, out of the, yeah, out of the pot and into the fire. I certainly don't want to fight Ryan because he was a fair bit more experienced and he was shorter, which probably really suited me. But he was just, I think he was a better fighter. And I was like, oh, let's go and just do the weigh-in and I'll make a call after the weigh-in. We both weighed in. We shook hands, took photos, all that sort of stuff. And I said to Robbo, like, we've sold so many tickets, I'll just do it. Because he was like saying, listen, mate, I understand if you want to pull the pin, we can just go home and forget about it. You've prepared for a completely different fight of a completely different fighter. And old mate sort of would have had an inkling that he's the backup and he could be be coming in. So he hasn't come in just off the streets. He's been training as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm saying to Robbo, like, mate, this is a dead set stitch up. This guy's been the replacement guy all along, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And uh, the rib was broken four or five weeks ago. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, that might not have, you know, that might not have happened. But, you know, this is the sort of thing that happens at fights all the time. And that's why I've been saying for years, if anyone had any brains who's got money, they would start a reality TV show about Thai boxing in Queensland, well, probably in any state, but in Queensland, there's the amount of drama that happens in Thai boxing. There's arguments over weights, decisions. It's there's always drama happening. Like it's a crazy sport. It really is. So we've got the change of opponent. What's going through your head then? Like, is it just yes, no, no? Oh, sold tickets because a lead up to fight week. Like, if you if you're having a fight, these for the people who haven't had one out there, you're my whole mindset, the whole time you're training in that is different. It's focused on this one point, on this one day, on this one opponent. And everything you do, it doesn't matter if you're at work because, you know, half of 90% of fighters still need to work yeah. and you've been a chippy or something like that. Your focus isn't on your work. Your focus is on what needs to happen in training yeah. or how you're going to get through this fight or how yeah. you're going to beat him. And then that works week. Right, works right at the bottom of the priorities. Yeah. Priority. And then yeah. that week, fight week, is a different feeling as well because you're confident. You, you know you've done the work. You might have a f- few little self-doubts creeping in, but if you've done the work, you yeah. just, you're just you reeling to go. And then to have adversity like that, oh, by the way, you're not fighting this bloke. You're fighting someone who you- Who's better. Who's better. Yeah, yeah. What was the sleep that night like? like oh, what was the mentality? We were staying at my wife's parents' house at um, Moffat Beach and- I remember I just was watching Family Guy DVDs, just trying to take my mind off it because I was, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Thinking you're going through every scenario, like, oh, you know, I could win, I could, oh, I could get really badly beaten up, or you know, I could get hurt. How am I going to go to work if I get really hurt? And then you, no, no, I'm not going to. In your mind, you go, I'm not going to get hurt. I'm going to kill the guy, you know. And yeah. you're trying to like pump yourself up, but yeah, I didn't hardly sleep. I had a, maybe two or three hours of just sleep that was just like a bit of sleep then half awake half asleep next thing you know it's you're driving to the venue and you're just like oh okay you feel alive man it's yeah. just it's nuts and there's a really good youtube video out cowboy Cerrone doing an interview talking about what it's like just before you walk out to fight i've seen that yeah and he's saying you know you're hitting pads you're trying to warm up but nothing feels good like everything feels uncoordinated and you feel tired and sluggish and all you want to do is sleep. It's just, it's the craziest feeling. And sitting out the back of a fight show, you just look around the room and you just know everyone's going through the same thing. Everyone's scared. Everyone's trying to act confident, you know, saying to their mates, oh, yeah, yeah I'm going to like yeah. murder this guy. I'm going to kill him. Yeah. And everyone's like, yeah, you're going to smash him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
everyone's like, yeah, yeah. But inside, you've also got a few doubts coming yeah. in and that. Yeah, it's just so weird because you you train, you, you're hitting pads and stuff and everything feels good. And then when you're warming up out the back, it just, you feel heavy, lethargic. And then next thing your music's on, you're walking out to the ring and the, the moment that you've been just constantly thinking about in your mind over and over again, you're in the ring under the lights. It's just, it's, oh, I miss it. Like I really miss it. I'd love, you just, you can't do this sport forever, but you're just face to face with the, the boogeyman, you know, yeah. the, the guy that you're going to have to go to war with. And it's just mad. You're, you're looking at each other in the eyes just trying to figure out, you know, maybe they might just look at the referee for a split second and you sort of think, yeah, I've got one up on you. And you're hoping that they're scared, but you know that they're, they're not scared. The tradies driving up a highway, up Brisbane. Brisbane yeah. Not only that, the stress at the highway every day, two totally. hours of traffic brings yeah. on. These are all things that, you know, a lot of our listeners being male wouldn't even know about. You know, they're trying everything to get their life right. They might be in that middle age where they're, you know, trying to buy their first house or, you know, they're trying to figure out how to become a man from being an adolescent little 23-year-old rat running around like we all were. Yeah. You know, to I guess to educate yourself now, if we can get, you know, that transition for the middle-aged man, especially after they reach around that 30, it's not a midlife crisis. I call it an identity crisis. Especially if you're a, a professional athlete or you've attached yourself to something that you've thrown, you know, the last 10 years of your life, you don't understand that life's not over there. Like, it's just, I always talk in 10 year cycles. So, one year you've got to be a beginner, two years you start figuring it out, three to five you become good at it, and 10 you're an expert. I think everything does happen like that. I don't call myself an expert in the sciences. I said that I'm not a scientist, et cetera, but I, what I've niched in with my clients. It's taken me 10 years. That's exactly so right. I can get my body into a certain composition, for example, but if someone sees that and comes in and they've been training for a week, like we're not going to have the same outcome, no. regardless of how much genetic info I can give you. So reps and consistency. And then like you said, you know, even the masculine side is different. Like your genetics as a guardian male is very different to a guardian female. We've still got those differences yeah. as well. So in the six types, we've got what we call a hierarchy of needs. So each genetic type based on that hormone that they're governed by that keeps them safe. So prolactin for you, for me, adrenaline and testosterone, which is movement, someone else, serotonin, pleasure and reward. You can then start to see, obviously like Laszlo's hierarchy of needs, for example, is like food, shelter. We need all these basic things. But what we've done in genetic world with the, the health types is there's three top epigenetic lifestyle areas that are more important to you or me. So for example, I'm going to give you yours and we'll talk about it later. Your top thing is social, which means all relationships need to be in a good perception balance for you at the point of time before food and fitness. Like literally, you can eat perfectly well, train well, but if those perceptions, and again, it can be a perception because we've got a brain that can actually go, well, okay, my partner is down, but I still can perceive that in a certain way. But if you know that, you can know, oh, that's why I'm having a little bit of fluff on my stomach this week and I've been training the exact same. So why is that? Like that makes no sense. So you can look at that area of your life first and you can dial that up or your perceptions around it. The second one is food for you because of the body type that has a, you know, ability to store fat and turn on those diabetes or, you know, again, your profile is completely unique, but your predisposition. So you need good food to manage your body type, right? And then you need good movement. So those top three need to be 
completely in place. And guardians too like groundedness because they're solid grounded bodies. They need shelter. Like, so yours does have that factor in there. Mm -hmm. So having things before you do is a really important, powerful piece. Mine, for example, is movement, number one. So fitness. So I have to move before I can do my work or else I won't be able to do it. Second is social. So if my, if I don't feel safe in the tribe, or connected based on oxytocin, I'm going to feel really stressed. And then I need good food to support my moving body type. Wow. So that's complete. And you and saying that, like I just spoke about me training every morning, I grab movement first, but you're completely right with the, I haven't digested. You will freeze if you haven't got, like you won't want to move. So you're locked into lazy body type. When I say lazy, you're not lazy. Do you ever feel heavy and fluidy and grounded it, it, and, and ungrounded if that's unsafe? I and like a, you're yeah. almost putting on weight, just yeah. feeling like I can, that? I can do a 10K run one day, but then if that, you just pinpointed it in light bulb moment, if those things change within the work relationships or something with me and Ellie or stress with that, that exact same run the next day can be a minute slower. Yeah, it feels like you're fighting against the stress response, yeah. right? Because you are. So that's your body conserving energy, which means I'll want to, up intake and decrease movement, you're pretty aware. So you're probably not going to go and shove, you know, 10 Big Macs in your mouth. Not that that's a bad thing, but what I'm saying is without the awareness, you could be actually putting in more. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but like again, but you're a guy too. (laughs) Just that, and especially with my ADHD, that uh, dopamine response. Totally. If I'm down, 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 I'm I'm food, food, food. I don't have that stop. Can I tell you too, like I said before, so there's a seesaw with that hormone. So prolactin is up and dopamine will be down. But mm-hmm. if dopamine's up, prolactin's down. So when your dopamine, when you hack your dopamine up, you will get leaner and lose weight because that's that, because prolactin is fluid and, and growth and size. So all of these are just like, again, you can just dial them up and down or just be okay with not being stressed about the stress. Yeah. So we add to that, right? Oh, I'm such a bad person. Why can't I run? Or I ate that crappy food, but it was your stress response and your biology, right? When you witness it, you can just go for a walk and go, oh, that's what's going on. I might be a little bit fluidier and heavier feeling, right? Isn't it beautiful? I know. Super, super cool. Shades of wind. I'm just, oh, mate. But Dr. Cam, he's um, a dopamine-driven genetic type, right? So he's quite a certain way. But his child was a connector, which is more of a dynamic and distractible and all these things that don't fit into a classroom, right? So he got an email from, we do a parenting course, by the way, as well. So you can learn your child's genetics and then nurture them. Don't make them eat breakfast if they're an intermittent fasting body type or, you know, let them go slow if they're a bit of a slow morning starter, right? So everything, as I said, you can incubate it much better. Um, But he basically got an email saying like your child's misbehaving and disrupting the class and blah, blah, blah. And he wrote back to them and said, hey, my child's this genetic type. If you let him move, connect, give him these responsibilities first, blah, blah, blah. This is how you, you know, you teach him in class, then he will be much better. And they actually did it and he's top of the class now. And we saw the email thread and I just thought, my, I'm going to cry probably right now because I just got that full goosebump moment. But that was me as a kid. I got told everything was wrong with me from even going oh. to AA and being in child guidance and, and on the veranda and the behavioral issued one. But it was my DNA. I've got to move. I'm not made to sit there and focus. So if you let me be dynamic first, I'm calm and then I can do those other things. So I wish we had this not just for my adult issues, but those formative years, those self-esteem years. Wow, that was the Any Given Chance podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. 
now. If you want to see some more action, head over to our socials and give us a like, share, and subscribe. We're on YouTube at the Any Given Chance podcast and on Instagram and TikTok at Any Given Chance. And if you can hit share and subscribe, much appreciated as we grow. Plus, we're always looking for new guests. So if you know someone in the midst of a battling good little bit of adversity or someone who's been successful, message us direct. We always check out your box. And of course, if you want to check out old episodes, repurposed ones, you can jump over to our website, which is anygivenchancepodcast.org. Thanks for joining us once again. I'm your host, 3AM365, Maddie Menion. No days off, no excuses, and I can't wait to catch you on the next one.